way you do it You play the guitar on the MTV That ain't working The Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each decade, we cover over 200 albums spanning all musical genres and tastes, from the well-known acts to the cult favorites. Your tour guides on this journey are John, Josh, and Matt, three amateur music podcasters who all share a love of music and a shared quest to hear the next great album. And now, we head into the Stacks. From the CTS Dojo, <laughs> deep in deep in the parts unknown area, Rex it is Quan the com- Rex Quanto, exactly. <laughs> it is the combing the stacks music podcast. We should probably come in with one of those cleaner openings where we run all of the stuff down. Like for example, that you can find us at Anchor.fn backslash combing the stacks. That we're on 15 different platforms. That, you know, we're on YouTube by searching Combing the Stacks Music Podcast, all of those fun things. But instead, we just, you know, we like to come in and change it up a little bit, even though we are an amateur podcast. Wait, we're I, not in the burning wreckage of this Twitter that it's becoming. No, no. We, we, we got out of Twitter, I think, before Twitter became yeah. more of a hellscape than it already is, right? Yep, so buy low, sell high. <laughs> I always think of the movie Freddy Got Fingered, which I, I mentioned that both of you guys hate, but it's when Tom Green takes the his date to a fancy restaurant and he brings a rotary phone with him, like as a cell phone, and he orders food and he, she asks him what he does for a living and he's afraid to say that he's an unemployed cartoonist. Oh my god. And he says he's a stockbroker and he <laughs> proceeds to go into a thing where he says... What I've learned is that in finance, you buy low and then you sell high. Is what ha- see what happens when the prices are high, you sell, and when they're not, you, you it just it, I don't know. It does very good justice. You should see that movie because it's freaking hilarious. Anyway, we've heard from Josh over there. Matt, how are you, bud? I'm good. I am good. Uh, happy week before Thanksgiving. Um, if you're American. If you're American, right? If you're not American, happy Ides of November. <laughs> and soon to be World Cup. That's right. It's That's coming. Right. Starting Go soon. USA. Sun, hey, sun, uh, it starts Sunday. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I learned that uh, one of the goalkeepers for Team USA, for the U.S. men's national team, uh, went to my alma mater. So uh, Yeah, Matt uh, Turner. He's from New Jersey. Yeah. He's going to be our starter. Yep. So, uh, so, yeah, Fairfield put out some a good – I actually knew the uh, – the goalkeeper when I was in school there, he lived on my floor freshman year. And uh, I was, when I first heard there was like, oh, the Fairfield goalkeeper is going to be there. I was like, oh, is this the dude that, and it's not the same guy. Cause 
I'm much older than that. So. I also don't um, think that, yeah, goalkeeper yeah. would be 56 years old like you, yeah. Matt. So, yeah, yeah, probably can't make it anymore right. in the World Cup. But, I thought so, yeah. No, so it's, it's going to be exciting. We, uh, we open on Monday against Wales, and then we play England the day after American Thanksgiving on Friday. And then we end, I believe it's uh, Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week, against Iran. Wow. So far away. Yep. And These are... <laughs> I have so many questions, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait. In case it, you're wondering, it, we are not now, the favorites. Mm-hmm. Is it now because Qatar or Qatar or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. so hot yep. during the summer? It's well. Is, you mean why is it now? Yes, it's because yeah. theoretically this is the most amenable time there really is no amenable time yeah there is no amenable time to playing in Qatar I mean there's obviously lots of questions about how that um World Cup was and there might literally be a stadium collapse as we always joke about well and if so then you know the poor uh the poor folks that gave their life for it may uh you know have given it for naught. But anyway, we're a, we're a music podcast, not a sports podcast. But I know the vast majority of the folks who interact with us on YouTube, who I love, um, are uh, not American. And so um, they may be football. We sh- let's use the correct terminology, right? Football as opposed to soccer. Yep. I, I, I always feel kind of inauthentic doing that, right? Because it's like, yes, but at the same time, you kind of become that American, right? Mm-hmm. Are we going to start saying pitch and kit and stuff as well? And then it's kind of like... We were a little bit craft beer. What about what about our identity, John? I don't <laughs> watch American, American. I don't watch American identity. sports. I watch otherworldly sports because I, it's too, you know what I mean. That's so culture about cricket. that. Yeah, but Super you know what I'm nice saying. Swimming. That's that's a little bit of the vibe of that, right? You know, like I don't like sports, but football with mm. my lads at the pub, you know, is <laughs> yeah. You know, no one says yeah. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm you, sure you have There, there are, there are. Trust me. They're, I'm sure so, at some point somebody paunchy, said that, Josh. They're usually paunchy guys with beards who I don't think played too many sports growing up. And um, they drink craft beer, which is my stereotype of most people that I don't like to spend a lot of time with. Like, they talk to me a lot about craft beer. So, so why are you hanging out with us? <laughs> well, now, you guys don't talk about it a lot. You know, you may drink. No, them, we just drink like it. We have, yeah, we talk about other things like um, music and current events and hardcore pornography and other issues. <laughs> Josh actually has the uh, a beer app that he tracks all and rates all he his beers. He's he's way more hardcore than me. But he doesn't like talk about it with me all the time. You know, Josh and I talk about many topics. It's the guys who like you you sit with them and you really don't have anything in common and they start talking to you about beer and <laughs> and like and like when when you do tell them that you like music, they say like you know, the, their reference points are always bands from the 90s. It's like, "Do you like Sublime?" And I do, but you know, it is a giveaway too, right? Or who else would fall in that if category? You're, if like that's your Rage first go to, like if yeah, you first start talking about music and like Sublime mm-hmm. is the first thing out of Pearl your mouth. Pearl Jam. Yeah. Rage Against the Machine, Sublime. Uh, There's certain bands that kind of give you away that you haven't listened to music OAR. in the last 20 years. There's some, I, <laughs> there was some woman at the grocery store that was talking about Evanescence. I always thought that Ooh. was hilarious. Oh, damn. Yes. <laughs> Wait, was yeah. she just like she was at the grocery store? You Can't wake were, up. That's what I think of with Evanescence. <laughs> you were talking to her? No, that's no, no, no. I wasn't talking to her. I think she was checking out the line next to me or something. Oh, okay. Um, or she was the cashier. I don't know. I didn't look. I'm, I'm just somebody was talking about Evanescence. Out. That was a they were golden big, age. They sold what a ton was? of music, ton of albums. What's the ter- Halcyon or Hallison or like what's yeah, that term? Mm-hmm. Halcyon. Yeah, that, that, that Halcyon age of like Evanescence and Buck Cherry and. 
vertical Papa horizon. Roach. Papa, Papa, <laughs> Papa Roach, I'll stand for a little bit because I have okay. fond memories of, you know, working Incubus. shitty, shitty, ugh, working <laughs> shitty summer jobs. You know what I mean? And like bros who were like, you know, nice enough guys putting in manual labor. They'd have house parties and, you know, you liked them, but you knew you were going to listen to like Papa Roach and Hoobastank, you know, when you were there and you just kind of, you kind of dealt with it. Right. Cause they're good dudes and they usually had, they brought the beer. So. Alien ant farm. Mm-hmm. I, I do. That video. They're, they're like in the area, but like, I'm talking like that, not new metal, like toxic, like just more like new metal shitty. Yeah. You know, like we, I, and, I don't yeah. think we're covering Evanescence. Their highest rated album is 178 in the 2000s. What's so unless that's much higher than I would think it would album. be. What's that, Josh? What's Incubus's highest rated album? Uh, let, me, let me look. Inc- that, uh, the Incubus is a totally different type of band. I know, but... Josh Incubus, is just curious. Yeah. Incubus, Incubus like, Morning Views 399 in the 2000s. Oh, so if we okay. want to start covering the top 400 albums of the 2000s, <laughs> we can do that. We can cover Bonus Incubus. episode. That's <laughs> right. I feel That's like lot, Incubus yeah. occupi- occupies the same lane, not like completely sonically, but fan base wise that 311 had mm. like six years earlier. Yeah, there's probably crossover mm-hmm. there. Yeah, I would think so. So anyway, we went way off topic. <laughs> That's hey, another you podcast. Matt, why don't we talk about what the hell we're covering tonight? Oh, all right. So in the mm-hmm. opening segment, we're going to do a regular episode tonight for the second week in a row. We're going to first start off with uh Marillion for the first time with their album Misplaced Childhood and I will be covering that and follow that will be followed up by to correctly placed adulthood or what what yeah so. I, I guess I don't maybe we'll talk about that I don't know misspent uh, youth misspent youth yes mm-hmm. um Josh is going to be covering Dire Straits uh with Brothers in Arms it's like the, the third time we've covered Dire Straits but the first time we've covered them in a proper episode so and we'll, the last time we will be and the last time yeah so we'll get the bio on who dire was who said they tonight. did not realize that Dire Straits was a band and they thought it was a person? I think person, we both said that. I, I, when I first heard of Dire Straits, I thought it was a person. Mm-hmm. I did I when I was that. like five or six. And yeah. then my dad made fun of me a little bit. And so like I think I realized it around six. I also thought Dire Straits was like an animated cartoon because of that video, <laughs> which we're going to talk about. But that's yeah. neither here nor there. I, uh, yeah. I should have named my kid Dire Straits. That would have been, been cool. <laughs> That would be, be tragic. <laughs> What's your child's name? Dire Straits. What the hell happened to you? So. And uh, and the final lap album we'll cover tonight is uh, Kate Bush with Hounds of Love. John will be covering that. Um, and we've covered her before twice, but again, this is the first time we're covering the mm-hmm. bio. So uh, and all these are from 1985. Okay. Well, we have a little bit of history tonight, courtesy of Matt. I'm sure it will start off with the Beatles. And then Mm -hmm. Josh will be running a segment tonight in which I think it's our third time doing it. We will dissect three videos from the 1980s of some degree of esteem. So that will Mm -hmm. follow it up. So to to tease it a little bit, we're going to do some history, some videos, and then you get three restaurant quality album reviews tonight. With no further ado, Matt. Give us a little bit of what's going on in the world of music this week. Such is a history of where someone has been killed. Okay, so there are a couple of Beatles things to go over, but I'm only going to pick one of them. I'll do the more interesting one, so that'll come a little bit later. But uh, in 1966, 56 years ago, the Beach Boys were uh, hit number one on the UK singles chart with their song Good Vibrations. And I found this little factoid about that song. Brian, as a child, Brian Wilson's mother told him that dogs could pick up vibrations from people. 
so that the dog, when the dog would bark, it was actually barking at bad vibrations. And uh, Brian Wilson turned this into the general idea for the song of uh, the title of that song. And thus began his descent into mental illness. 1966. Yeah, it was probably right around then, right? Because that was was that after too many. That was after Pet Sounds, John. What was the that? Because that was a single. I thought, or if that was supposed to be on Smile, what was the deal with that song? I forgot. Good Vibrations, I think, was slightly after Pet Sounds. I'll have to check on that. I'm sorry, you put me on the spot. It's right around the same area. Yeah, 66. So, yeah. In Pet Sounds was 66 too. So I don't know which. I think it was after, but anyway, we'll Mm -hmm. we can look into that. Um, 49 years ago in 1973, The Who's double album Quadrophenia entered the UK album chart, peaking at number two. And uh, that we covered that back well, several episodes ago, several. Uh, and that was a, the, the second, was that the second Who uh, rock opera? Mm-hmm. Uh, they also made a movie out of that as well. Um, 1979, 43 years ago, Jethro Tull bass player John Glasscock died at the age of 28 as a result of the congenital heart defect. Um, And I believe so. Yeah, he would have he would have uh, he would have been on those albums that we covered. uh, It was Thick as a Brick and Aqualung were the two albums Mm -hmm. that we covered. Say Aqualung. (laughs) And in 1990, 32 years ago, David Crosby makes an appearance. He uh, was admitted to the hospital after breaking a leg, shoulder, and ankle after crashing his Harley-Davidson motorcycle. Um, He turned out to be okay afterwards. Not an orgy-related accident, as well. Maybe he was was coming. He was he was leaving the orgy. I believe is what was happening. (laughs) I think your first thing was funnier, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so this is the other Beatles thing. uh, the, the, The second one that I found, but in 2000, so 22 years ago. If you guys remember, we covered the Beatles. Um, Andy White was the drummer that was kind of right in between Pete Best and Ringo. He came to the session and played on a couple of songs, including Love Me Do, which every time you hear the main version of Love Me Do, it's it's Andy White actually playing the drums. So um, they featured that song on a new Beatles greatest hits album. Mm-hmm. But the money that he earned from it was not even enough to actually have him allow him to buy the record because he only got uh, his original session fee of seven pounds uh, <laughs> for his contribution to that song when it was re-released. So I thought that was kind of funny. I don't know how that worked out. It's like, oh, we're going to put out this song on a comp- on a compilation album and you're going to get seven seven pounds out of it for your one song contribution. I don't know how they calculated that, but um I would it, it seemed it seemed pretty low. He probably should have gotten a little bit more than that. And worse news, it wasn't the money. It was just seven punches for his contribution, seven pounds. So, yeah. Uh, yes. Disappointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Eagles, I guess. So 15 years ago, the Eagles hit number one on the U.S. album chart with Long Road Out of Eden, which was their seventh studio album and their first one since 1979. I didn't even know that the Eagles released an album in 2007 or since the seventies. So uh, I guess they did. I don't think it it was for you, Matt. It certainly was not, (laughs) but it was for a lot of other people because it did hit you number one on the charts. Do Um, you want to take, do you want to do a snap review of that album without having ever listened to it, Matt? It sucked. Okay. (laughs) It could be good. What if it's awesome? And you're on record saying well, that, you know. The best yeah. I was just channeling Garth. I remember when Garth's uh, Garth Algar's reviews were. It sucked. Yeah. Um, Won't you have egg on your face if it's? Maybe it's good. Maybe maybe Magnum I should opus. listen to it. I I'm mm-hmm. not going to, but maybe I should. Hmm. 
I mean, yes, I would say you should. Now I'm going to build you it into so? the 2000s, <laughs> right? Yeah, 2000, 2007, that would be. I'm sure it doesn't suck. I'm sure it's, I mean, they got to have some good songs on it, right? I Maybe. Hotel California Part 2. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still here. Remember when I said I couldn't leave? Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 12 years ago in 2010, Patti Smith won the National Book Award for her memoir, Just Kids. So you guys will, maybe mm -hmm. you should check that out. You guys love her. I think, disclaimer, we must also mention that Matt's second worst album review is the yep. Patti Smith Horses review. So Overrated. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. I've seen the cover of that book. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's yeah? White, a white with like a black photo, black and white photo of her or something. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway. And uh, finally, Peter Gabriel in 2016, six years ago, he launched The Voice Project, which... Um, the Imprisoned for Art campaign, which was an effort to free prisoners around the world that had been sent to jail for opposing their governments. So, yeah, he's, uh, he, he, he's not only about the world music, he's about saving the world as well. I wonder, wonder how, how much how that, that went? actually did. Yeah. Hmm. And a couple of birthdays, turning 76 years old today, born in 1946, English rock musician Martin Barr, who is best known with his work with progressive rock band Jethro Tull. So another Jethro Tull shout out and Jethro turning Tull 50, heavy episode. Yeah. And turning 56 years old today, born in 1966, Richard Fortas, who is a guitarist known as best known as a member of Guns N' Roses. But he also played with uh, extensively with the psychedelic furs frontman Richard Butler, who we covered hmm. a while back. We didn't do any Richard Butler solo stuff, but it was just psychedelic furs. But um, I think Richard Butler's done a ton of music over the years. So and this guy plays a lot with him. So there you go. Right. Well, thank you, Matt. All day, all night, all music videos. All right, it's time for Internet Killed the Video Star, the segment of our show where I pick three interesting music videos that came out the year we are covering this week, which is the year of 1985. And as we mentioned previously, or maybe not, I can't remember, we are covering Grace Jones' Slave to the Rhythm, AHA's Take on Me, and Dire Straits' Money for Nothing, and coincidentally, or not, with the album that we're reviewing this week. So, I believe I'm going first with Correct. Slave to the Rhythm, mm -hmm. and... Give well, a picture. I guess what we usually start with is we give a little bit of a synopsis of what the video is. Sure, sure. Yep. Good luck, so, Josh. Mm. <laughs> I, know. I know. Well, that's part of what makes it interesting. It's basically... Um, a collage of some of her previous um, videos along with uh, a lot of um, almost like uh, different mixed mediums of art and kind of interpretations of and fashion of of her and like her almost like transforming in different ways you know at one point in the video she becomes a giant like robotic head that ejects a car out of her mouth which i thought was pretty rad and there's also some animation i think there's some kind of still photography a lot of um visual trickery where things are uh actors or performers kind of do one thing forward and then it's and it's thrown in reverse there's kind of some interpretive dance in here and all sorts of things it's a real visual mishmash and some bongo some butt bongos some oh, yeah. uh, some light nudity <laughs> yes <There's>, yeah <laughs> a lot of falling from the sky type of like did you notice that theme that a lot of things mm -hmm. were people 
falling into the frame or so, overhead yeah. camera shots of um, mm-hmm. of like kind of dresses and like these gigantic like oversized dresses and and things of people swallows them up uh so one one insane fact that i found is that the voiceover done in the videos by ian mcshane of of uh, oh, wow. the actor from deadwood and and many other wow. things uh i thought that was interesting it is directed mm-hmm. by jean paul godet who was her boyfriend at the time i don't know what else he did but wanted to credit that and um what'd you guys think of this video I, I was curious as to where it came from, like, because I I didn't know the song or the video. So, was yeah, you, how did you pick the uh, how did you pick the videos this week, Josh? Was there a, uh, a, a, pick, a method? Uh, I just kind of knew. Well, I always look at the year first and kind of get a list of what has what came out notably um, video wise. This was uh, her album that came out this year, and on this album that came out this year, and. Um, I just picked it once I watched the video I thought it was it was mm. worth discussing and um, you know I don't want to I try and pick videos that are interesting to talk about but also are kind of doing something different and I felt like that um, that fit the bill here yeah. um, also a big year for her she was in a view to a kill the James Bond movie which I mm-hmm. just coincidentally watched <laughs> <laughs> um, so she had, she was all over the place oh man yeah, I saw her in uh, in Boomerang recently. I was like, oh, there she is. She played like kind of a, a crazy model lady in Boomerang. Oh, yeah. Um, she was intense. Yeah. Yeah, and this video was kind of intense. I mean, it's, it was kind of, it was very, yeah, artistic. I mean, people dressed up in a lot of different costumes. And yeah, there definitely was like, I'm like, I think there is nudity in here. Yeah. Quasi painted. <laughs> like even one that seemed like it There's was like a, a fair little, amount of nudity in here, Matt. Yeah, yeah, it's one that seemed like there was a little girl that was like kind of in the shadows yeah, without any pants up. on. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was just, it was, a. I mean, for the first time watching it, the only time watching it, um, trying to take a lot of different things and also another shot of her, like shooting, you know, shooting herself in the head mm-hmm. and then like, you know, pulling it, putting a gun to her head. And then the next frame, there's like a big red umbrella top of an umbrella. So simulating like the, the, the shot, the blood and whatever. So yeah, definitely very artistic and, and different. Uh, I, it was fine. It was, I, it's one of those things I was like hard to figure out what was what was going on or like what the if yeah. there was a message or the theme or whatever it's just a a bunch of random shots of people and different um you know art you like trickery like you said you know um that they kind of, that they kind of put together so it seemed pretty creative in terms of you know just the artistic nature of you know putting together a video in 1985 when technology wasn't so great um so it's it definitely you know i'm sure that it was um yeah, it was unique and and and, uh, and different in that regard as well. So it was mm-hmm. interesting to see, you know. But I don't, I don't have a strong take. Like, oh, I loved it or I hated it. It was, just, <laughs> yeah. was kind of like, all right, that's that's an interesting video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what yeah. about you, John? Grace Jones kind of is art as music, yeah. and it's it's yeah. almost impossible to separate who she is from the visual aesthetic. And in that way, there's ele- I'm trying to think of other artists who are so defined for me. I mean, I guess recently somebody like Lady Gaga tries to do that. St. Vincent had a little bit of that. Um, you know, obviously David Bowie, you know, was doing elements of that. Yeah. To a to a more mainstream area, Madonna is a little bit like that as well, that the, the visuals are yeah. there. But Grace Jones is the most uh, um, like that of any artist that I know because you almost you, – you think of her visually – 
as much as you think of her musically. Yeah. Um, it also had a, a very like European sensibility, I felt. So it's avant-garde, but in like a pop art type of way. Mm -hmm. And I thought the video was almost like a great primer for the strike. Like she's a striking woman visually. Yes, definitely. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that's, you know, she's like this incredible canvas, right, for um, color because she is um, very dark skinned and short hair. And yeah. then she uses pops of color by design. And I always think that's very like interesting. A lot of Grace Jones videos. She's also very like um, streamlined kind of, I guess would be the word I would say like, uh, like, like vertical, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like kind of just uh, like straight, but also definitively feminine. Yeah. Um, she, yeah, she does yeah. ride that line of androgynous in a really interesting way. I would say androgynous, but she's very recognizably feminine at times. Yeah. Too, like, uh, in like with a sexual energy feminine, right? Yes. Uh, but mm -hmm. also at times, yeah, tries to, to kind of go with a, like a blank slate approach visually. Um, in contrast to wild, Matt mentioned the thing where there was like a, a shot and then the red um, thing comes out of it, and then it becomes the dress of something that's dancing that almost sort of simulates like the brain itself. I think the art, and there's a lot of uh, very, um, there's a lot of um, images that are loosely pieced together. I would say thought provoking, but also just visually eye catching yeah. in mm -hmm. a, in the way that to to look at art. Sometimes it's about just the the colors, the aesthetics. Sometimes there's a message, but sometimes it's just how everything congeals together as an aesthetic. Yeah. Um, that's why this video was very cool. And then when you, it was interesting because the the song right was would we use the term ethereal? Would that be a good? Yeah, word? like I think yeah, it's um, touches that. The drumming's excellent. I mean, I love I love the drumming in this song. <laughs> I'd like to point out it's kind of um, hypnotic in its own way. But yeah, it's um, I really loved it. Uh, it's it's also one of these things that you can't piece it to any era. It just exists as art, so it doesn't scream 1985. I guess outside of the no, fact that was, you were using 85 cameras and stuff, and now yeah. they'd use. Uh, higher quality cameras but as yeah. a piece of art it sort of operates in a vacuum and that's what good art does it sort of transcends its its era yeah. um so yeah i i really liked it uh, i i thought it was i'd never actually seen this video before either josh so i was glad you picked it yeah i i noticed the color too is there that was definitely a theme of of contrasts and bright colors and you know uh not just with her but with other performers and people in the video that thing that struck out to me is it was that really um dark woman and then she kind of gets like mm -hmm. blasted in her face and like upper torso or like all white um, right that was kind of um interesting well, but yeah i like this video too i think it's just there's a lot going on i think it's it's very creative and and um trying stuff that other videos don't even try and go for well it's always very interesting art wise when someone's either very pale or very dark or has like very red hair or mm -hmm. just something that stands out as a as a either a color or sort of you know one of the the blank slate colors right because yeah. then you could do so much interesting stuff with it you can bring the other binary in in the case of dark you know the the light but also you can overlap color with it to, to contrast it which mm. was happening in this video pretty consistently um yeah. and i'm here for it yep so check it out on youtube 
if uh, you haven't seen it. It's worth uh, four and a half minutes if you've got that to spare. It, it sure is, and it's um, it's a it's a pretty good song too. So mm-hmm. I'll I'll throw that in there as well. Um, does that take it to me? Yep, on to Aha. So here is how well I know the Aha Take on Me video, guys. I watched it, obviously, but I don't even need to watch this video to recap it. That's how many times wow. I've seen this video. Um, I'll start. Let me give a couple impressions off the front, and then I'll do it. First of all, I I will say I think this is the best music video of all time. Um, it's especially incredible because of when it was made, because mm-hmm. it seems like... 20 to 25 years ahead of its time um and still i think if you watch it you're like wow like what would have would have had to have happened right to have made this in 1985 i can only imagine the the lift that would have been required to make a video like this um i have some stats on that but yeah Mm -hmm. uh, well and you know what let me turn it over to you then about the making of it because then i'll recap it but tell me a little bit about like how this video is made because i've always been fascinated by that yep so first of all it's directed by steve Barron, who also directed the money for nothing video um okay Hmm. and he's wow i didn't know that some interesting um you know being creative in that front uh basically uh take on me uses rotoscoped animation where you um, you take live action um, film and you trace over it with animation. So you trace actually trace over the frames, and that's what that appears here. You know that's all the black and white um, pencil drawings that we see um, in this video. And uh, it took and rotoscoping has been around for a long time, and it's even used in a lot of modern day um, uh, movies and animation and things like that. So. There's a whole rabbit hole you can go down. Off the top of my head, there's a, a documentary called Waltz with Bashir that's rotoscoped. Um, Scanner Darkly is a rotoscoped animation film. And um, I think some of Richard Linklater's new, newer work, I think a film he put out this year on Netflix, also, is also rotoscoped. Is that so, like The Waking Life? Was that kind of yep, like that? Waking Life yep. is rotoscoped also, also Richard mm-hmm. Linklater. So um, there's a lot of, you can, that's a whole rabbit hole you can go down. But um, I saw it, it was 3,000 frames that were rotoscoped in this video, and it took 16 weeks to complete. So that, that was a big effort, I would think, for a music video for sure. Yeah. So, well, thank you, Josh, for mm-hmm. filling in some of those gaps. Um, the plot of the the video is kind of a plot of what the lyrics in the song say. There is a woman who is in a cafe, and she is browsing a newspaper and going to, I guess, what could be called like the comic section, although it's more like a graphic novel um, in terms of how it plays out, I would say, thematically. Um, she, and like I said, I could do this basically off the top of my head. I've seen this video so often. So, as she's uh, reading this comic slash graphic novel, she becomes immersed in the story um, of this handsome gentleman who is within the, the comics. And she eventually is ported into the comics themselves and becomes a basically a live action person in that rotoscoped world. Mm-hmm. Um, and in record time, uh, becomes enamored with the guy in the video. Um, and it seems like they're headed to happily ever after. But then as the song changes to sort of the dun, 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 like the more urgent version of it, like, I mm-hmm. guess not dark, but urgent, I guess what it'd be say uh, they are pursued by, I guess the cops. they look like cops, but like with wrenches kind of that Plumber are coming cops. to pl- yeah, plumber cops. Like some, I never quite understood the rent. I guess they didn't want to show guns. Maybe Norwegian I guess because they- I, I get, I always got the feeling they didn't want to show 
guns, right? Like on yeah. the video. So instead they give them these these wrench type things. And they are coming to to I guess either kill or harm uh the happy couple. And as that's happening, they're running around the pages and it's going slide to slide through the comics. And then eventually the gentleman um S, like opens a hole in the comics and she ascends back into the diner where the patrons in the diner see her like basically in the garbage can kind of because they'd thrown away the newspaper because the the waitress had thought that she'd run off on the bill mm -hmm. and she hurriedly scrambles and picks up the crumpled up magazine um oh and by the way i should mention when the the change happens right where they're being pursued it coincides with when the the newspaper is crumpled. So I don't know if like the crumpling of the newspaper is kind of like what kills the the vibe, I guess, or the world, but mm. that seems to have tied to. So the woman runs home, the the very Scandinavian looking woman, I'd say, as is good a gentleman. <laughs> and she's home. Well, he's and the lead she... singer of Aha. So. <laughs> Aha, yes, exactly. So um, uh, she unfurls the newspaper graphic novel and she sees a picture of him like splayed out, like chalk outline style on the thing. And she gives a very forlorn, sad look that does bring the feels, I would say. And then right as she thinks he is lost forever, suddenly in, in the retroscope thing, but coming into live action, banging himself against the walls of her apartment to shake off, I guess, the comic. Uh, the uh, lead singer of AHA slash protagonist um, appears in her life, and she is amazed, and they come close to each other mm -hmm. and embrace, and you are led to believe that it's happily ever after as the song winds down. So that is the plot of AHA Take On Me. Do you think he was originally a character and then came to life or did he get sucked in to the he was a real person mm. that got sucked in i always i was curious about that watching that's an interesting i always thought like he was in it and then yeah. like her love her love that makes sense allowed him to transcend the page yeah. was like how i always read that i yeah. guess mm -hmm. yeah what about you matt what is your I, I i certainly didn't remember it as well as john did but what do you what do you oh, think i no, i remembered it pretty well um from like because it was on all the freaking time yes and, it was um, it was even on like nick rocks it wasn't just on i remember nickelodeon <laughs> had their music video no, don't. nickelodeon yeah nickelodeon used to have a music video like a half hour like they oh. would do like five videos or whatever it's called nick rocks um, well that goes back even before that because like there'd be like shows not just on nick but like kids incorporated and stuff that kind of mm -hmm. had like their own you know videos and stuff which... right but yeah yeah so it was just like a mini mtv segment that they did probably more like i don't know probably more kid friendly company so I think yeah like they weren't i don't think they were doing more risque stuff but anyway so this was on there a lot too so but yeah I, uh this is a yeah it's a very cool video even by today's standards it's still a really cool video yeah. and i liked i like the shots where they're you know, in the they're in the comic book world or graphic novel world, and and there would be there are all these kind of mirrors that were set up, and so yes. that as they would as the mirror would come into frame, if you were behind the mirror, then you were clear. Then that person was kind of clear amongst the sea of all the pencil mm -hmm. drawings and and whatnot. And then the camera would move, and then the person would turn from like a real live action person to the to the to the pencil drawing person. So yeah. um, it's very the effects are very cool, and um, yeah, and it's a great song, right? It's just uh it's 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 by far their biggest song. It's a song that still is pretty popular. I think they were used I think they would play this song 
was it the Nationals games, like at the seventh inning stretch or something like that? It was mm-hmm. a uh, a song that they would play, and then the crowd would it they did get to the part of the song where it was like the high pitched part, and ever mm-hmm. the crowd goes sing, sings it all together at the same time, and it all sounds terrible, but everybody's having a good time <laughs> anyway. So it's still a song that I think a lot of people know today because it just makes its way in different parts of the of, of, of the population so um but yeah just very you know one of those other you know cool videos that just was you know unique and it doesn't surprise me that it took freaking 16 weeks i mean the whatever the budget was must have been pretty pretty high i, I don't know how many people are working on that how, yeah. many, how many people you well that seems short that even stuff, but... for that era you know like i felt like it yeah. could have been even i could have felt like a year that they could have right and that's that why i'm wondering if there was like a if there was like a ton of people working on it or or what but uh but yeah it's like iconic and uh it was fun watching it again yeah i i agree matt i my favorite part was when they would transition between the the band in their you know real life and switch to the animation it was kind of seamless the way they did it yeah and the shifting perspectives of the windows or mirrors or whatever it was um those transitions always worked really well i i enjoyed the video too i hadn't seen in a long time and i kind of forgot the overall story of it but um yeah. the animation hold, held up uh still holds up really well and uh so and it's like uh, i mean with such a kind of well their biggest hit as matt said but it's a iconic 80s song that a lot of people know so to have an iconic video with it kind of makes it last even longer through through history i think yeah and we covered it in a cts episode uh hunting high and low is the album it's track one on that album so yep um did you i wasn't there for that one but didn't you guys pretty much say like after that song you don't need to really listen to the there were there was one or two other songs there were one or two other songs that were pretty good but it yeah it was it felt a little bit early i think it was their first album and so it Mm. it felt a little bit um incomplete to my ears at least yes i I thought it was pretty lackluster overall What do you think the guy did to warrant the police? I always thought they were like race car drivers because they had helmets on, like these like old school like race car drivers. But yeah, what do you? I don't know what he did. Like, why? What do you do to make him so mad? I think it's more like they don't want the love to happen. Matt is how I read that. Man, that's messed up. They hate love. They're like the opposite of Stevie Wonder. Yeah, (laughs) bizarro Stevie Wonder. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Well. Speaking of bizarro Stevie Wonders, yep. Dire Straits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Money for yeah. nothing. And now, speaking why of classic videos, why don't you chicks uh, for free s- sum up how this one? Um, yeah, this is this, this is full blown like computer animation. You know, like the it very is. beginning of Pixar, probably. Would you say <laughs> no, it does not, not age as well as uh, the Take On Me not. video? No. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would say that. That definitely, John. Well, the Take On On Me video makes sense because what Josh was saying, the way that they. The way that they created it was actually based off of live action, and then they just used art on top of that. So, but you just get the feeling like, like a like a fourteen year old today watching the Take on Me video would be like, "Wow, what a cool video!" Right. That's yeah. And if they watched the Money for Nothing video, they'd be right. Like, what this is, is this? like this <laughs> is like one bit, you know, computer. It's like you know, when technology. they watch. It's like when they watched the movies in the mid '90s with the initial computer technology and stuff, and it's like you can see all the flaws in it. I this feel is like, like this, yeah. this. 
The, the animation in this video is kind of like what an intro to like computer programming student like in high school would create. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a very basic kind of thing. But yeah, so I mean, it's all like very blocky. And so you got this dude it starts off in the beginning with like opening the sting part of the song where it's where it's very kind of creepy. It's it's, yeah. it's it's pretty cool and like setting the stage for this big like reveal or whatever. But yeah, there's the tall, skinny computer guy that's sitting in his living room with his dog and he gets transfixed into the beginning of the of the of the Dire Straits song Money for Nothing. And then the drummer kind of comes on the TV and uh, the guy gets transported into the television mm -hmm. Um and so the, the rest of the video is basically like a combination of the band playing the song live, it appears to be. Yep. And But they have all these 80s effects where the, like this Neon is the only part that doesn't age. Yeah, it doesn't really favorite, age yeah. as well. It's like, you know, Mar the, the clothes and certain parts of the instruments the headbands. are like, yeah, the headbands are like neon lit. And so it's kind of like got this blurry neon light surrounding it. And, th and those are also, that's rotoscoped animation also. Oh, is it? Okay. That neon Look at that. Stuff. Everything's rotoscoped yeah. back <laughs> yeah. in 85. Pop, pop and then I there's some the 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 loud caricatures of movers with like the cigars oh, in yeah. their mouth and portly builds yes yeah well that's the then there's the other guy right there's the shorter stockier guy that's supposed that's mock singing i guess like you know lip syncing yeah. against the the song and so he and the tall skinny guy are, are like furniture movers or what yeah, and so moving. that's they're you moving move fridges and microwaves and stuff <laughs> yeah and, and unfortunately and, uh, the stocky TVs. guy the stocky guy does appear to be a little bit homophobic as well i think we must <laughs> point out so, <laughs> yeah, yeah there's in that the modern part. context we're certainly yeah. going to talk about that but yeah, yeah there's definitely i know i noticed when you hear this song now on the radio at least on xm yeah. radio they, there's a whole mm -hmm. verse that is cut out <laughs> they just don't even oh, it's like, like every it. 90s rap song where yeah. like there'd be whole stretches where like it disappeared yeah because the video on youtube does not cut that out no, it does not. No, yeah. and it did, and it didn't cut that out in 1985 when <laughs> right. you know when it was seven okay. year old Matt was watching the video. So it was also like, oh, Spotify, that's just Spotify does not cut it out either. Yeah. but yeah. that is the ultimate like times change. Right, you know? but no, but in the on, on the radio, like I've heard this played on like the 80s station on you know that that's definitely um, censored. Yeah, <laughs> just cut it out. Uh, and so yeah, so that's basically it. You know, they're just kind of they're moving and watching. They're they're admiring the band. And I think, and I did read a little bit about this. I don't know if you cover this, Josh, but it seemed I think that Mark Knopfler got the inspiration for the song by like here overhearing some mover guys that were actually movers talking about like, oh, these rock stars, they think they're so great or whatever. Yeah. And so that was kind of the something. Was that Josh? Did, was that, yeah, that part of right. your research? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. so that makes sense because that's what the lyrics basically are about. It's like you know these guys don't work hard. They just I should have learned how to play guitar because then right. you get all the women and yeah, yep. so. Yeah, mm -hmm. so uh, so they're kind of they're admiring the band from afar. So uh, so yeah, that's the and it was big. It was a big deal, man. This was like this was one of those videos I remember that I wouldn't see. I saw Aha all the time. I don't remember seeing this a lot. And when this came on, it was like you got to stop what you're doing because they're playing mm -hmm. it. And you know you couldn't you but before we were recording stuff or whatever, and you could just pull it up on YouTube whenever. But I remember this being like must see TV of of the of the music <laughs> yeah. video world. And it, I think it won like video of the year. It was always like in the the mid late eighties when they would do the countdown of videos of all yep. time. It was yeah, always it in won, the top five of, you know, for it a lot of one in 85 years. over the aha video, which is kind of remarkable to me because I think if I'd been confronted, if I'd watched both of these in 1985, I find it hard to believe I wouldn't have been more struck by the, but I'm a little bit more of a, artistic you you're know, a trendsetter kind of, john you're well it's just trendsetter. it's a more the aha one's a little bit more of an artistic video i think I and i like, definitely yeah. that definitely i would agree that age is better than this one mm -hmm. so although I, I obviously yes the animation is primitive by today's standards i do think it has 
a certain charm to it um, mm-hmm. for it now. And I thought they did a good job. There's some pretty funny things that happen in it. Like the guy gets frozen. I thought that was funny. Or um, mm. when the dog howls at the same time as in the song. And then um, at the end when the skinny guy sings Sting's part. Those are my favorite parts. Yeah. Is, it, <laughs> so. is it charming in the same way that like... Uh, like what's the, what's the the video game at the end of that was it doom or whatever where that they had the worlds and stuff what what was the game called um, what what game like the, the the computer game you could play where you created your own world it's not really my thing i feel like you probably played it at some you mean point. like sim city yes. no even before that this would have been like the 90s oh. you create your own world and you could make levels and i want to say it was called like doom or something but it's uh, well, Doom is a first-person shooter. You could create your own levels. Yeah, like one of the Sim earliest City? ones, right? No, like yeah. one of the earliest first-person things oh. where like you had to get out of the world. All right. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, that's, I blew that's that. a big yeah. popular one. Yeah, sure. is it charming in that way where it was like trans- <laughs> transcendent, but then it kind of 10 years later looked primitive? I mean, people still play Doom, so I guess it, okay. it is. Uh, not me, but um, anyway. Oh, also, I wanted to note that those two videos that they show in the... Um, in the video of the other bands one is a hungarian pop band um the <laughs> first one and then the other one's actually a made-up band a fictional band which um, one's the one which one's the one with the uh the questionable lyric like the pretty yeah, boy that's hungarian <laughs> pop band elso emilet in their video <laughs> stop or i'll shoot <laughs> wow which is appears but the the title you know the little info alt graphic is baby baby by first floor that's what they call it and then um, the sex, second one is just called Sally by the Ian Pearson band, who was one of the animators of the, of the video. Hmm. Um, anyway. Fun fact. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I, that was my mind-blowing fact this week, actually, Matt. You, you seem to know. I didn't know Sting sang that part. I never put that together. Oh, really? You, oh, yeah. you didn't know that that was Sting? That sounds <laughs> yeah. exactly like well, him. Yeah, I know now when I heard it. Yeah. But like up until this week, I did not Were know you? That. Were you equally surprised when you found out that Michael Jackson sang the Rockwell hit? I always <laughs> yes. feel like somebody's watching me. <laughs> no, no, I knew that. You knew that? Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I was going to give you a couple more, uh, Josh, that might blow your mind. Like, over time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got some other facts this week on that level, I think. But, um, okay. yeah, so overall, I liked all three of these videos. And, um, of course, I picked them. So why wouldn't I like them? That's but, right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, good good choices. Yeah, thanks. Classics. <laughs> Indeed. So. And that takes us to the portion of the show in which we're going to do some reviews, which I think we're all excited about. Um, probably no no one more excited, though, than Matt this week, who's going to be leading us off. That's Matt, right. That's I, you right. know what? I'm just going to allow you right now to just go right into the numbers and take it away. What's the deal right. with Marillion? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to find out, Josh. So we are covering Marillion with their album Misplaced Childhood. And in the opening montage, you heard a clip from Kaylee. And now you're going to hear a clip from Heart of Lothian. Right, call so Mar- it Lothian in the song though I couldn't Lothian like, it's like an R I, almost 
That's well, the, yeah, I don't know. He's, is he's it got fair a very to say, dramatic voice. Yeah. Is it fair to say when you get a song called Heart of Lothian, you kind of know what you're going to get before you even hear the song? Or? I think that's pretty fair. Yeah. Okay, there you go. So Misplaced Childhood comes in at number 91 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number 10 in 1985, number 599 of all time. It is Marillion's highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. And it did not make Rolling Stones list, but they are ranked number 220 of overall artist rankings on Best Ever Albums. So fairly highly regarded there. All right, so we'll do a little history of this, but this this record was recorded from March through May of 1985, and it was released on June 17th, 1985. Happy birthday, Mom. Um, it's their third studio album, and it's considered a seminal album in the neo-prog rock movement, which is a term yes. actually I was not familiar with. So neo-prog is a genre of Why music. Why do they call it post-prog? I guess it's not really... I don't know. Maybe that's a different. That would be a good name for it too. Yeah. But uh, and there is an excellent definition that I got off of Wikipedia about <laughs> okay. neo prog. I'm not going to read that right now. I might save that for later because I want. I want to. I, I have a feeling if I start reading that, it's going to just take all of the descriptions mm. that we might come up with off the dome. Got so I'll enough. come with that later. But uh, but Marillion is kind of the preeminent neo prog band of all time. They're kind of the the main guys with that. So. Uh, the album was produced by a guy named Chris Kimsey, who had also worked with multiple other artists, some of which we've covered, including P Peter Frampton, The Rolling Stones, Jimmy Cliff, Killing Joke, Psychedelic Furs, Duran Duran, and Yes. So he's got a lot, an extensive catalog that he has worked with. So a little history of the band. It was formed in late 1978 by drummer Mick Pointer and bassist Doug Irvine. Which came out of uh, which they came together after working in a band together called Electri Electric Gypsy, and the band's name was originally called Cimmerillion after the J.R.R. Tolkien mm. uh, novel. Uh, surprise, surprise! Uh, but they changed it to just Marillion not too long afterwards. Uh, some reports have suggested that they did this to avoid any copyright lawsuits that they might be confronted with. So good call. Um, yeah, probably. Uh, so it's one of those bands where, you know, in the early years, there was a, a plethora of lineup changes. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to go through all the names on those. But basically, when they the, the, the lineup that they had set before they went on to start recording their studio albums included Steve Rothery on guitar, Mark Kelly on keyboards, uh, Mark Tr Truavas, Truavas, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but he's on bass, Mick Pointer on drums. And the lead vocalist who goes by the name of Fish. <laughs> yeah. F-I-S-H. Not yeah, just Fish, yes. Not his real name though. Not his real name, correct. So they recorded some demos in the spring and summer of nineteen eighty and sub and subsequently were signed to EMI Records, released their first single, Market Square Heroes, in nineteen eighty two, and their first full album was released in eighty three. The name of that album is called Script for a Jester's Tear. And this album was met with some success. It peaked at number seven on the UK charts. Uh, they and, and they started, even though it was, you know, did pretty well, they started getting accusations that they were being essentially copycats of Genesis. God um, damn it! They took my that <laughs> well, was my it's, line. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty easy <laughs> end of segment. Easy, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so. Um, uh, as, so they go on tour in support, of, in support of their debut album, but then the drummer was uh, Pointer, who was the guy that actually started the band, was fired 
uh, as lead singer Fish uh, felt that his timing was awful and that he failed to develop as a musician with the rest of the band. And so he gets replaced by Ian Mosley. Um, and basically the core of the band, with the exception of Fish, is, is, is the band that they are today, um, that they, they, they've kind of, most of them have stuck with it and uh, throughout, throughout their current existence. Uh, they had a second album called Fugazi, <laughs> not like the band at all. Uh, it was released <laughs> in 1984 and had a more streamlined hard rock sound to it. It also sold well, hitting number five on the UK charts. And that brings us to Misplaced Childhood, which is their third studio album. And it's a concept album, surprise, surprise, loose, mm -hmm. loosely based on the childhood of, of the lead singer Fish. And he was inspired to write the lyrics of this record uh, after an incident that occurred while he was under the influence of a 10-hour LSD trip. Mm. And Makes the story has, has thematic elements of lust, love, sudden, sudden success, acceptance, and lost childhood, along with uh, what is described as an upbeat ending. I tried to find like a specific storyline somewhere. I couldn't find it. So uh, it's just a concept about a variety uh, of childhood? Yeah, I, I mean... it's probably the... Right, but I didn't catch it quite. But I'm talking about like characters and like, was there like, you know, you know, kind of yeah, we've had yeah. other descriptions of the actual story. So, um, but this did go on to be their biggest selling album, topping the UK charts and remained on the uh, the UK charts for 41 weeks. It was the 20th best selling album in Britain in 1985. And it sold well across the, U uh, the Europe and the US as well. I have a couple of final thoughts on the band, but that's there's not really a ton of information on them. It's just this is their this is kind of their biggest album. So I am curious to know where we start. Josh, why don't we go ahead and start with you on this? Sure. So I was um it's hard it's hard not to make the Genesis comparison. I mean yeah. I, I heard that right away. Uh not <laughs> yeah. even not even specifically Genesis, more just like Phil Collins. He almost sounds exactly like Phil Collins. Like if you didn't know any better, you, you would think this might be a Phil Collins Genesis album or something. Um I don't know when Prague ended so that Neo Prague could start, but um if this is I think the biggest takeaway i took from this i think it might be like new coke josh where like coke <laughs> okay, didn't go away they just made a new coke too. It's, i believe i believe it says it started in the uk in the early 1980s is okay. when it started so i don't know if Prague was totally gone away by then or whatever right. but yeah it's a definitely a new incarnation of it so there's uh, you know this being an 80s album i think this neo Prague has an incorporation of synths that we haven't heard before in prog rock. And the other big thing was like the electric guitar, I feel like came in strong on, on this almost like, uh, at times it reminded me of like top gun soundtrack, Harold, Harold Faltemeyer type of synth and guitar, especially on a song like heart of Lothian. Um, I, bittersweet, I, I would yeah. say had that vibe to it too. Yeah. There's, there's um sweet s-u-i-t for those yes, wondering yeah. yes mm -hmm. um you know like other prog albums that we've heard um the songs kind of flow into one another so if you're not paying attention you'll be on another song without without realizing it um other elements of prog that i heard were you know it's kind of it, it seemed like a very british album to me there's i think there's like folk elements in it i think it kind of has that medieval feel to it too at times the um i definitely got those themes that matt mentioned especially love and kind of lost love and lust and things like that um i thought the 
I thought their singles were pretty catchy, like Pseudo Silk Kimono is kind of like an intro really to the whole album and it's pretty synthy and Kaylee is Kaylee and Lavender are pretty uh strong, um uh, catchy songs that I liked. Um the keys, especially in Kaylee, are pretty um pretty good. Uh a song like um heart of lothian i kept laughing every time he kept saying white boys white boys i thought that was hilarious and uh in waterhole i like the kind of use of xylophone that they have in that that was cool that that coupled with the electric guitar um worked pretty well um like a lot of um well not necessarily like a lot of prog bands this is a pretty short album overall um they don't really um you know they have kind of multi-part songs like the in the bittersweet um which is the fourth track it kind of has multiple things and i did hear throughout um sonic cues to previous songs um i picked that up um so it, i think it does reward re-listening in that aspect and kind of ties the album together we heard that in genesis as well and some other prog so um you know like matt said when i saw the neo prog uh, label on Wikipedia. I was kind of <laughs> expecting the worst, but I think with the electric guitar kind of worked pretty well for me. And I kind of liked the, the eighties quality of it. Um, and it was enjoyable. I did, I couldn't say that I would, um, revisit the album, but I thought they were, they were definitely doing, it's like eighties prog. I guess they are like the eighties prog band. If you had to like label them something, um, and this was a band I had never heard of also. Um, like I think John mentioned that at one point uh, last week, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it, it, it moves, it is upbeat for the most part. And I think there's a lot that you can kind of grab onto and, and enjoy, especially if you like Prague, you should definitely check this album out. So I'd say thumbs in the middle to to thumbs up on this one for me. Yeah. Um, I would say Neo Prague is not my <laughs> lane. I would say historically yeah. that's, um, that is not I, a surprise to me. I, um, I, I wouldn't say I'm anti Prague, but I Prague, there are bands that do Prague that I gravitate to more than other bands, if that makes sense. Like I gravitate more to King Crimson or Rush um, mm -hmm. more than I do big, bold prog. Like this, this prog felt like 70s excessive Genesis prog mixed with like the never ending story soundtrack, I'd say, <laughs> would be how I'd describe the sound of like this neo prog. Like it, it's, it's like it's like if you take seventies Genesis and you're like, what would happen if you mixed it with, you know, the never ending story soundtrack? That's what I feel like Neo Prog is like. And you know, I could definitely see how this probably influenced later like the the sort of the metal prog. I I the dream theatery type stuff, right? Because there's you you, you you know what I'm saying? Like I can see how it it gets there eventually. Or even right? like it's... Coheed and Cambria, aren't they kind of like proggy yeah, and like yeah? I mean, they're not exactly like this though, because they put yeah. a little bit more edge in it. I, 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 there isn't a band that I am aware of that, and I know there are ones, but that I can exactly say, oh, they continue the lineage of this. But I can see bits and pieces. But obviously, yeah, Genesis, yes. 
um, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, right? Like, those are bands that, like, mm. I think of. And we haven't covered Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. But um, elements of Pink Floyd, I would say. Um, yeah. Jethro Tull. Yeah, I'm just going through, like, the different... That Like, clearly, they had to have been influences, right, uh, for this band. And I think Matt pretty much confirmed that. Um, I struggled... Like, the sonic palette of this... There's nothing of this sound that really hooks me. I get like the guitars aren't biting enough. I would say they're they're soaring, and and there's pieces of songs that I can kind of try to to ride the vibe on a little bit, like Bittersweet, which we mentioned before, uh, Lords of the Backstage, Childhood and Childhood's End, uh, but I never. I never, so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not an easy genre for me to click. It's like when Matt talks about, like, I know famously like ska, right? That it's a sound that doesn't appeal to him and stuff. I wouldn't say it's not so much that the sound doesn't appeal to me. It's just a difficult sound for me. I think another thing I struggle with in Prague is the lyrical soup. There's, it's really not saying anything to me. It's kind of like a lot of, there's a lot of words, but I'm not quite going for what they're going for. Like, uh, like the last song in particular, like when you get like, when I hit the streets back in 81, found a heart in the gutter and a poet's crown. I felt barbed wire kisses and icicle tears. Where have I been for all these years? I'm like, okay. Like, that doesn't make I, 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 I'm not sure what, <laughs> and then it just kind of continues with like groups of four like that. And I'm like, it always feels like it should have some sort of story to it, some of these Prague albums. And then I search for it and it's like, well, I don't know if these are about lyrics. They're about soundscapes. And when I'm not getting a a sound that I grab, like it's not atmospheric enough for me to kind of get lost in the sauce, so to speak. It's not heavy enough for me to really embrace the riffs. Uh, yeah. It's not... Um, like it's it's expansive but not in a way that um like clicks with me i think and I, I think that's kind of like so this falls in the like it's not necessarily for me um i by the second or third i gave this three listens because i i wanted to kind of uh see what i could do because i could appreciate that the playing was was solid you mm -hmm. know i just um i kept looking for the hook that got me in and and i kind of finally said I know Matt's going to like this and I know Josh will probably like it more than I think, but this is the rare album where I think I probably will defer to you guys because um, I, I have to talk about this technically kind of like what the sound of the guitars are like and, and the structure of the songs, because from a aesthetic value, it is just mm -hmm. not my lane. And I hate to write albums like that because part of what I want to do on this show is expand my palette, but um, this one, I almost feel like I need someone to explain to me what they like about it so I could listen to it again. And I promised myself that once Matt tells me what he likes about this album, I'm going to go back and listen to the album in that context. So Matt, I just set the table for you. Huh. Mm -hmm. Well, pressure's on. So yeah. I, I mean, full disclosure, I, I mean, I, I've only known this band in name. Um, I, my brother did recently get into them. I don't know, maybe a year or two ago. And I remember talking about it and, I, and he was like, oh, and then I realized we're going to be, we were going to cover it. So I purposely, I didn't want to listen to it. I wanted to save it for like, you know, for this week. So I've been holding out a while. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, first things first, yeah. As soon as he started singing, I was like, holy crap. I mean, Josh, you mentioned <laughs> Phil Collins, yeah. but it's yeah. like, to me, it's like, it's, 
it's Phil Collins and it's very much Peter Gabriel. Oh, it's though, Peter too. Gabriel is what and I heard. It's, yeah. it's mm-hmm. I heard more Peter Gabriel. Like Phil Collins actually kind of, I always felt like he got his vocal stylings from Gabriel after, you know, those I, that, first few I mean, years, you know, sense, yeah. but it's, it's a, it is very much a combination. You hear at both of those for sure. And um, I was getting certainly in something like Lords of the Backstage. I mean, that just seems like a, that could have come off of Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, you know, that yeah. kind of, that, that soaring kind of like, it's very dramatic. It's very over the top, you know, as soon as he's, and as soon as the first cinematic, songs, would you say? Yes. Cinematic, yeah. theatrical and pseudo silk kimonos, the name of the first song. <laughs> and like, as soon as it comes on, it's like this got the very eighties synth with it. Mm-hmm. And then he's got this very dramatic falsetto voice talking about like, God knows what. And I was just like, man, this is totally why being a non-lyrics guy is helpful for me on an album like this, because it's just, it's ridiculous, you know? Um, And so that's why I don't need the lyrics for this. And it's a good thing because it's like, it's, it is kind of nonsensical as far as I'm concerned. Hold on. Prague is Hold really on. like the theater kids of music, isn't it? It's like yes. very performative. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Performative yeah. and theatrical. In if that they way. used a lot of drugs, yeah. I think <laughs> is the other thing that they had in there. Ten hour acid so, trips. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I will read the, the first four lyrics, Matt, so you get an idea of what you weren't listening okay. to. So huddled in, I probably should say it, huddled in the safety of, a, you know, to get the idea of what it sounds like, but huddled in the safety of a pseudo silk kimono, wearing bracelets of smoke, naked of understanding, nicotine smears, long, long dried tears, invisible tears, safe in my own words, learning from my own words, cruel joke, cruel joke. Wow. There you go. <laughs> Next question. Um, mm-hmm. And then and then I could just get past that and just get into the music, which, I yes, I loved. I mean, it, this is like um, – it, it, what do I like about it? Um, well, first of all, the production. It's I mean, compared to Genesis, if we're going to keep going off of that note, which you kind of have to – it's kind of hard not to talk about them when you're talking yeah. about this. Uh, but it's way more produced. I mean, some of the early Genesis recordings, like even now after they remaster them, they're still very – archaic in some ways you know it's just not they just didn't have the technology this is let's just lush production you know it also has um, 80s guitar on this on like yeah. really it's like it might as well be like you know yeah. very crisp great, very great white or whites you know something like yeah, yeah, and it's very things, big, yeah. and it's just it's a very crisp, clear, big kind of production. So it's 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 much cleaner in that regard. Um, it's interesting, like because I thought that plenty of this part, actually, plenty of the songs in here were I did not really find to be proggy necessarily. Because then, and, and I guess that my definition of prog has more to do with like interest, like long songs first of all, lots yeah. of um, like time signatures, really interesting different time signatures that switch often. Um, songs that go in totally different directions stuff like that so and and this and this definitely had that but it also had very kind of more straightforward you know three four minute pop songs you know yeah they have more um, traditional structure i think right and yeah. so in that way i actually kind of feel that this is if if somebody like kind of an intro prog album you know you could you could probably not you wouldn't do much better than something like this right like yeah. I, to me this is an easy entryway into it um and i definitely heard sure. elements of, of rush in here as well you know that 80s rush sound yep. but um i i just think that it's got really cool melodic parts throughout all of it i mean john if you're saying like i was having a hard time finding a hook well, and i i don't think you meant the hook of the song itself but just like no something to hook like a hook in. like uh, hooked yeah hook me in. no no right. there were hooks like there were 
course is all over the south right and that's and and so that's what draws me in it's really kind of and and i did like it the more i listened to it way more than three times but uh the more i listened to it you know i kind of i just i found myself singing along and just liking the way that the that the that the music was progressing and the way that this oh wait you sang along like what did you sing along to with the heart of lothian okay so yeah you know it's just like little parts of it and stuff like that you know like the like the hook of the song um, you know what's so weird about this album too? Like I got a vaguely religious feel to this album at times, huh. like the like a cathedral type sound with different stuff. But then the lyrics are a hundred percent percent like New Age, like yeah. healing crystals type stuff. Um, and o- Prague always has like a weird like like medieval element to it for me as well. Like I just hear it like as like medieval yes. sounds yeah. kind of. Yeah. So. I, I like is th- that's a hallmark to me of prog music even when other like other groups are doing it and they're talking about vague like n- con like i think there's a lot of like armchair philosophy kind of that's also in prog lyrics hmm. um self-exploration shall we say and this is um, also about a lot yeah. about relationships like Haley's all about like i it, i just read that it was about of a, all a bunch of relationships that fish had that he put all together kind of into one person and just, you know, and then how they, you know, um, how, how he did her wrong and did all these women wrong and stuff like that. So it's relationship based and, and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it does, it has that kind of, I mean, it's got the organ kind of thing. That's almost like a church sound in and of itself. But um, I, and I, I liked how it, like they brought things back like lavender, you know, kind of the melodies, parts of lavender, parts of heart of yep. Lothian kind of came and go, they came and went in different songs. And I don't know if you guys noticed, I think it was at the end of the, of the, the last part of bittersweet where they recalled, um, Rain over uh, love, rain or me from the yeah. who? Yeah, by they, the who. That, I, the, I noticed that. I, yep. I heard that. Yep. yep, yep. So there was a call back there to that. So, um, but this was just I don't know. This to me, somebody that's been into Genesis for many years and and, and likes prog rock. This was a pretty easy listen. This is something that wasn't challenging yeah. for me at all, and it was it was kind of a a welcome kind of uh, you know sound that was happening in 1985, which is not something that. I traditionally associate prog music. You know, prog's usually more of a seventies kind of a thing. Yeah. But um but I am aware, and that's the other thing that my my brother went down a freaking rabbit hole with all this like the Spotify, like if you like this, try this. And then it's like <laughs> one of those things where you can just and there are a ton of even bands like in recent years that are very much prog influenced. It's like this whole underground kind of thing. Um and, well, there's uh, and genres these... like video game music and stuff that exists now that are cousins of this type type of music yeah mm-hmm. yeah, yeah i could see that so um i mean you know I, so i yeah i liked it i thought it was i thought like i said it was catchy there were some interesting like i really did like the lords of back of the backstage i liked that 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 had kind of one of the more interesting kind of drum parts that was kind of a little bit of the offbeat thing going going on but yeah songs like the last two songs like childhood's end and white feather seemed to me to be very kind of like straight up pop songs that were just mm-hmm. very catchy and uh and enjoyable yeah. so it's kind of ridiculous um and i could like sherry hated it she's like i hate everything about this I was like, I, okay, it's yeah. not it is not i i, I probably fall more on the sherry lane of this where i'm like yeah. mm, this is not a this is not a sonic palette yeah that which i get me. you know it's everybody's thing i mean you got it to me Ke- like i i think you got to get past the lyrics at least for Kelly, I, I just don't 
Kelly is basically brown eyed girl lyrically, but like a prog brown eyed. He even like at times mentions like making love on the grass. And so I'm like, Jesus, this is brown eyed girl. But like <laughs> for prog kids, I guess, which is so much less like the Van Morrison one is sort of like a idealistic, you know, love affair. This is sort yeah. of like to me, like, are we actually touching or are we thinking about touching while actually, you know, doing mm. something else, you know? And so I just was chuckling because I was like listening to it. I'm like, Jesus, this is brown eyed girl. But well, and like, Kaylee was weird. the big single from this. That was the, mm. the there was three singles and they all did pretty well. But uh, for but Kaylee and that's kind of known as their that's like their best known song. Uh, Lavender was a single and Heart of Lothian was a single as well. And and both sides of this record, the first side ends with Heart of Lothian and the second one begins with Waterhole. Like both the first side and the second side are just continuous pieces of music. The only real stop in the action is between the, the fifth song and the sixth song when you flip the record over. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, this is up my alley. It's really cool. Um, I, I would certainly be interested to hear more of their stuff. They do have 20 albums. Um, yeah, so they've, and they're still around. They just had an album out last year, I think. Do they all play on um, a continuous loop or are they autonomous pieces? <laughs> just what goes right to the next. Yeah. Well, okay. there's a couple, there's a couple of actually interesting things, but before I get to the, the postscript there, um, so I just, I, I thought this description from Wikipedia about the neo progressive rock or neo prog was like just perfect. It says it's characterized by deeply emotional content, often delivered via dramatic lyrics, a generous use of in- imagery and theatricality on stage. The music is mostly the product of careful, careful composition, relying less heavily on improvised jamming. The subgenre relies very much on clean, melodic, and emotional electric guitar solos combined with keyboards. The main musical influence on the neo-prog genre are bands from the first wave of progressive rock, such as early Genesis, and to a lesser extent, uh, Pink Floyd. Funk, hard rock, okay. and punk rock were also influences on the genre, which is the one part that punk I was kind rock? of like, really? I did not yeah. hear the punk rock. That's, I did not hear any funk either. I, I didn't hear any of that either. But the beginning parts about this, the yeah. sheen and all that, I was like, yep, that's that's pretty much this. Can, I, these, yeah. can I also share something here? Because I did not check until afterwards. I was curious, like, who is in this genre? So mm. I went to all music. There are, uh, there's not a single band I recognize who's <laughs> followed yep. by. I do want to share some of these names, though, because it gives you a little bit. Uh, Enchant, Frog with two G's Cafe, Landmark with the Q, Spock's Beard, Mostly Autumn, Eluvatar, Flamborough Head, and Sylvan <laughs> These are, are real bands babies. that are, they, I mean, you can, can do a lot worse than just saying those bands. And I feel like that description you gave was great, Matt, but also yeah. I think those names also give you a little bit of a vibe for um, uh, like, what you're listening to here as well. So if you listen to that and you're like, Ooh, those bands sound like they'd be pretty rad. I think yeah, yeah you're in. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're in Prague land. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to give this a full blown thumbs up for me. Surprise, surprise. Um, and it sounds like John, are you abstaining from a vote here? Is that what was that? No, what I'm I giving this a thumbs down. I thumbs down. Okay. Got it. All. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got it. Um, and Josh, you were slight thumbs up. Yeah. Or thumbs mm-hmm. in the middle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's just quick posting. This is the only time we're covering Marillion. Uh, the lead singer, Fish, actually left the band in 1987 to pursue a solo career. I read that he actually was really upset with the manager, thought that he was really that the band was getting fleeced, and he basically Did gave you... them the rest of the band an ultimatum saying if, if he, either he goes or I go, and the band stayed with the manager. So he went. Did he left you know him. Fish's real name is Derek Dick? Perhaps that's why he went by Fish. <laughs> so yeah. just thought um, I'd share that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, so Fish leaves the band in 87 and he was then replaced by Steve Hogarth, who is now the current lead singer. He's then the rest of the band has been basically that incarnation since, mm. uh, they released 17 other albums since Miss Place, Place Childhood. Uh, and in later years, they actually started this tradition of starting of, of allowing fans to pre-order their albums, because I guess that I think they left their label and they didn't really have a label. So they had fans pre-order their album and they used that money to to create the album. And then they would give out special copies to the, the fans that pre-ordered it. So they were. Yeah. And they would do this in like I think they started this in the late 80s. Um, and so they're also kind of pioneers in the whole like, yeah, fan crowdsourced fan funded right. uh, albums uh, <laughs> that uh, I guess a lot of other bands might be doing. So then um, they still they do that quite. They I would did imagine, that quite regularly. I would imagine they have a rabid following. They strike yes. me as the type of band that has like a super cool. OK, gotcha. Well, there's so I will I look to see if there was a documentary on them and I there is, but they actually have their own website, which is uh, that you have to pay like a monthly subscription to do to, hmm. to like to join. And that's where they have a what variety do you of get videos. And do you, do you get like their musings like on a weekly you get, basis? Like, like you get the <laughs> document. You get the documentary. I didn't go all into it because I'm like I'm not spending money on the on the on the thing. But um, uh, but but it's research. a whole. Did your brother, your brother, <laughs> yeah. you should tell your brother to do it so he could probably get dispatches <laughs> from Marillion's website. The, the website is the space Marillion MarillionVod.uscreen.io. It's called the space, and it's basically like a variety of videos and interviews. And so there was a documentary on there, and they did talk about fans like. It's like this cult of fans that like are all super, super into them that feel like they have the secret that nobody else knows about. But it's like this <laughs> special thing. And these people travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to see them multiple times. Oh and like God. it's like a whole thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, it, describing it, one of the things that they, that they were saying that they didn't like is the, despite the fact that they do get, generally speaking, pretty good positive reviews nobody ever seems to take them seriously or like and want to interview them or anything like that because they kind of have this I, label of being this nerdy prog rock band i would um, imagine critics hate this band would be my guess am i right that, or they, did they get no they no because no that it's like a weird juxtaposition because they actually okay. they, the reviews are pretty decent Okay. But like nobody wants to go beyond that and actually either admit that they like them or like invite them on radio stations for interviews and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> That's kind of so sad, like, actually. Yeah, they they have because they have this reputation, but um, and they won't get played on the radio. So like it's this weird thing. The the Hogarth, the new lead singer, uh, basically said, you know, he thinks that they should have changed their name when when he joined because they they do. He said that they've done a variety of different sounds. It's not just this. He actually at one point said, if Pink Floyd and Radiohead had a love child that was in touch with their feminine side, that would be us. Hmm. Was his way of describing just Marillion in general. So but, have you um, listened to any of the later stuff? I haven't. No, I started. Okay. I listened to the previous record because of the first album because that was the second highest rated album on best ever albums, mm -hmm. uh, and it sounds cool. So I could totally see myself going down a uh, a wormhole with this. You know, it's just trying to you know get more into it. But it's, uh, but yeah, they've got twenty fans. They're twenty albums. Their fans are super devoted. Yeah, they probably <laughs> wow. They're really devoted. devoted fans. Twenty yeah. fans. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're still kicking. They're still kicking around. So, yep. The lineage of. The timeline of prog rock is it's interesting but yeah i think i mean my final thought is i think the what kind of carried me through this album was the electric guitar and kind of that that throughout so yeah i thought it was a pretty easy guitar sound to get into but. yeah well and in fairness i don't really love that 80s produced which we'll talk about later in this yeah. uh episode but the the 80s production 
is a hard thing for me as well. So when you throw that on top of that type of prog, I think that was something that made it compared to like when we did, you know, yes. And Genesis and stuff albums that I would joke and say, not my lane, but there were always stuff that I could pull that I liked on those albums. I think the eighties production is what kind of moved that into the Mm. not for me. So I'd be willing to listen to them if they made stuff outside of that eighties production feel. Cause I get the feeling I might like them a little bit more. But um, okay. I think that was kind of what doomed the album for me. The the 80s feel and production and just it, it's that sound sort of sterilizes music for me a little bit. And yeah. I think that's what happens here. Well, yeah. maybe you should check out 2004's Marbles, which is their fifth highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. Maybe they've lost that by then. So maybe maybe that's the way to go. Maybe that'll be the next one I listen to and I can report. I actually will check that out, Matt, just so I can report back on that in <laughs> okay. our next full episode. I there promise. You go. Yep. Time for me, huh? It, it is. Yep. yep. It's yep. time for you. All right. We've got Dire Straits Brothers in Arms. And in the opening montage, you heard Money for Nothing. And now you're going to hear Walk of Life. Dedication, devotion, turning on a nighttime into the day. All right, Matt, what are the numbers on this one? So Dire Straits Brothers in Arms comes in at number 26 in 1980s on the on Best Ever Albums, number three in 1985, number 223 of all time. It is their highest rated album on Best Ever Albums. And they come in at number uh, number 124 of overall artist rankings on Best Ever Albums. And they are ranked on Rolling Stone's list, coming in at number 418. All right. So uh, Brothers in Arms is their fifth studio album. It was released May 19th, 1985. We've covered them twice previously with uh, Love, or, Love Over Gold and a blanking on the name of the other album. Um, somebody can fill that in for me in a second but the making uh, movies was the other album josh thank you Mm -hmm. um they were formed in 1977 in london by by lead guitarist and vocalist mark knopfler his brother david knopfler who is the rhythm guitarist john ilsley on bass and pick withers on drums they all had uh, different day jobs at the time when they formed the band and mark was actually an english teacher and david was a social worker and um, ilsley was at college um, the, they were originally called the Cafe Racers, um, but the name Dire Straits was thought up by a roommate of, of Withers, and they got a record contract with Vertigo Records in 1977 after DJ Charlie Gillett played a demo of Sultans of Swing on BBC Radio. Their first self-titled album came out in February of 1978 in the UK and drew attention of Karen Berg at Warner Brothers in New York City. And then later that year, they went on tour opening for Talking Heads, um, which led to a contract with Warner Brothers and increased their exposure, especially in uh, the U.S., Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. In 78, they had a U.S. tour with Sultans of Swing, um, getting to four on the U.S. charts and eight on the U.K. charts. Bob Bob Dylan actually saw them play in L.A. and invited Mark and Pick Withers to play on his album Slow Train Coming. Um, one of the Bob Dylan albums we didn't cover <laughs> in the 70s. And the uh, 
in 19, June of 1979, their second album, Communique, was released and produced was produced by Jerry Wexler and Barry Beckett um, and continued their growth and uh, exposure as a band. In 1980, they were nominated for two Grammys for Best New Artist and Best Vocal Performance by a rock duo or group for The Sultans of Swing. Their third album, Making Movies, came out in October of 1980. And during um, recording, tensions between the brothers caused David Knopfler to leave the band over creative differences and pursue a solo career, and he never returned. Um, this is a band that uh, had a lot of lineup changes in its, its short time frame. Uh, basically, just Knopfler and I believe uh, John Ilsley are the only two members that remained throughout the entire career. The... Um, so in came guitarist uh, Sid McGinnis and keyboardist Roy Batan from the E Street Band filled in on, on making the uh, on making movies, and uh, after record after rec oh after recording keyboardist Alan Clark and guitarist Hal Lindy's joined the band or Hal Lind uh, making movies featured longer songs as we touched on and more complex arrangements which became a hallmark of the band. And their song Solid Rock became a staple at live shows, as well as Tunnel of Love. And then Making Movies stayed on the UK charts for five years, which I thought was pretty interesting. Their fourth album, Love Over Gold, was released in September of 1982 and featured lengthy portions of Alan Clark's keyboard and guitar work. And the title of the album was taken from a sleeve of a Captain Beefheart album which I thought was also interesting. Um, Private Investigations, the song, gave the band its first top five UK hit or top five hit in the UK. This was also the first album solely produced by Knopfler. And he um, also at this time wrote Private Dancer and gave it to Tina Turner for her album of the same name. Um, also during this time, Pick Withers left the band and was replaced by Terry Williams. And then interestingly, in January of 1983, they released a four song EP called Extended Dance Play. And there's different letters that are hyphenated and all comes together as one word so it's kind of weird looking but um, it featured the hit single Twisting by the Pool and they went on a eight month tour which culminated in a double live album titled Alchemy Live of their two ending concerts at the Hammersmith Odeon in London. During the 83 to 84 period uh, Knopfler wrote the score for a movie called Local Hero, and the final track is played before the end of every Newcastle United game. He's he's from Newcastle, um, specifically. He also produced Bob Dylan's Infidels album, which Alan Clark is featured on. And then they began recording Brothers in Arms at the end of 1984 in Montserrat, which is a British overseas territory in the northern Antilles Islands in the Caribbean, for all you geo heads out there um i had to look it up because i did not know where it was um before they got there Knopfler. so this is continues our tradition of british bands performing in weird british studios out in the middle of nowhere probably in poorer conditions than they expect no rolling but, stones tra uh, yeah. traveling uh studio josh <laughs> yeah um they uh before they got there, Knopfler already had all the songs written and the band had already rehearsed them, so they basically just had to record. Um, they added a full-time second keyboardist to the band, whose name was Guy Fletcher, and then Hal Lindy's left the band early on, and guitarist Jack Sonny joined. So during the first month of recording the album, they found that their drummer was unsuitable for the sound, so they kicked out Terry Williams for the recording 
and uh, brought in uh, jazz drummer Omar Hakim, and they brought um, Williams back for the music videos and the world tour that followed. <laughs> so he wasn't good enough for the album, apparently. Uh, Omar Hakim was the guy who um, basically created that drum intro opening to Money for Nothing also. During the recording uh, of Money for Nothing um, song specifically, Knopfler was trying to go for a ZZ Top sound, um, he said, and the sound may have been enhanced by the happy accident of the mics being placed in kind of a haphazard way. Uh, they normally wouldn't be. They were probably left out the night before um, and weren't finished being set up, but one was was uh, pointing at the floor and another was offset from the speaker and another was somewhere else entirely they didn't say so uh, they just ended up using that sound in the track and that's what you hear on the album with no additional effects or mixing the album was produced by mark knopfler and neil dwarfsman it was one of the first albums recorded on a sony 24 track digital tape machine so this is all digital recording um, at this time when a lot of bands and artists were still using analog stuff. Released in 1985, Brothers in Arms entered the UK album charts at number one and spent a total of 228 weeks on the charts and sold over 4.3 million copies. It went on to become the best-selling album of 1985 in the UK, and the US had peaked at number one on the Billboard 200 for nine weeks, going multi-platinum and selling 9 million copies. This album and tour were insanely popular, guys. <laughs> the Money for Nothing reached number one on the singles charts in the UK, in the US, and four in the UK. Um, the other singles are So Far Away, Brothers in Arms, Walk of Life, and Your Latest Trick. Um, Brothers in Arms is the first album certified 10 times platinum in the UK. It's the eighth best selling album in UK chart history. It sold over 30 million copies worldwide. Money for Nothing was the first video to be played on MTV Europe when it launched August 1st, 1987. As Matt already knew, Sting was guest vocals on this track, and he's he has a co-writing credit as a result due to his melody of repeating I Want My MTV in the fade out. Um, echoing the melody of Don't Stand So Close to Me, which I kind of hear, but kind of don't um, in that. It won a Grammy for Best Rock Performance oh, by by a duo or group. It. And in 1986... Well, I, want, I want my MTV and Don't Stand So Close to Me, Josh, are basically don't the exact stand same so, thing. Don't They're stand the same. Yeah. No. Oh, you're saying I want rhyme. my MTV. Yeah. yeah, he sings yeah. like literally, and they even rhyme. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's pretty clear, yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Also won Best Engineered Album, non-classical, that year. It's nominated for Record of the Year and Song of the Year, Losing both losing to We Are the World, which won that year. <laughs> oh, damn. Speaking of videos we should cover, yeah. if you just yeah, want right. to like call out all the different people that are on there, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I always, when I think of We Are the World, I always think of like Bruce Springsteen, and Bruce Springsteen is the one funny part, and then Bob Dylan like is the other funny part of that video, by the way, I'd like oh, to point geez. out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The guitar on the front of the cover of the album is Mark Knopfler's 1937 14-fret national-style O resonator. Um, and it's kind of like a metallic guitar. You can read all about that kind of I style of guitar. it was a dobro. Looks like a dobro. It is not. It's a specific hmm. uh, type of guitar that was produced only in the late 30s and early 40s. Um, Brothers in Arms, uh, this is the other fun fact I found. Brothers in Arms is one of the first albums um, directed at the CD market and was 
was a full digital recording. Um, it was CD also, mar- like S E E D Y no, or no, CD, CD or like okay. compact disc. <laughs> Sorry, oh, okay, I said gotcha. it wrong. Okay. No problem. <laughs> um, it was also released on vinyl and cassette, but it was the first album to sell over one million copies in the CD format, and it outsold the LP version. So CDs then became kind of the dominant. I think rose to dominance um, in the audio sphere. Um, the world tour for this album. They played 248 shows in over 100 different cities. They appeared on Live Aid during the tour with Sting guest starring um, in their performance. And their tour ended in Sydney, Australia, where they hold the record for appearing 21 consecutive nights in a row. Um, they, with over 900,000 tickets sold in Australia and New Zealand, it was the biggest tour in Australasian history until Ed Sheeran broke it in 2017, which I thought was very interesting. So I've got a postscript because they really only did one other album or one or two albums after this before they broke up. But um, what did you guys think of Brothers in Arms? This is kind of the epitome. We've been building to this album on our Dire Straits talk. And uh, what did you think of this album? Yeah, I um, it's a mixed bag for me, I'd say. Uh, The first four songs are sort of omnipresent. And so it's like boom, 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 boom hits. And it's easy it's easy to understand what Dire Straits is by listening to those four songs. And maybe you throw in like uh, Sultans of Swing and like Romeo and Juliet, right? Mm-hmm. When you listen to those six songs, I feel like you will know what Dire Straits is from those six songs. It's not to minimize other stuff, but that that's what they are. And so you're like, okay, I've got a, sort of a general idea. It's like uh, Knopfler's guitar and sort of a, uh, uh, there's a guitar tone that immediately is recognizable when you hear Dire Straits mm-hmm. that's there. And uh, this album, I think, um, his voice contextually too, I would say, is, is kind a of bunch distinct. of, sorry. It's so funny that we cover this album the same time as we cover the Kate Bush album, because they're sort of structured the same way where it's a lot of like pop songs at the beginning and then some experimental mm, on the back yes. end. And this one is different, and I, I'll save my thoughts for the Kate Bush album until later, but this one's sort of like you get these um, these big hits at the beginning, and then the second part of the album becomes very atmospheric and fit a lot of space mm-hmm. on yes. these tracks, like One World and Brothers in Arms. Um, I found, I'll be honest, I found the second, the second album is definitely like the vibes that are being put off like, are they, do you connect, right? And I I don't know. I think it goes back to that clean production sound that there's just not a lot of grit for me or, or just things. I, like, when I get taken into the vibes, right, like, I need a little bit more to, to bring me in. And I don't know. The second part of the album did not connect with me. Um, that certainly does not minimize the fact that songs like So Far Away and Walk of Life and Your Latest Trick. I, my favorite song on this album is Your Latest Trick. I think it's kind of, along with Sultans of Swing, I feel like it's oh, interesting. It's the best of what Dire Straits is. Um, it's very romantic, um, is how I would describe that specific song with the, the sax all over. It's almost um, adult contemporary, but um, because the guitar work is so tasty around it, you kind of get fooled into realizing that at its heart, this sort of feels... I, and I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but this kind of feels a little bit 
like boomery and a little bit adult contemporary to me, if that makes sense. I wrote that down um, for your latest trick, adult contemporary. <laughs> adult, yeah, and and I just think, I, I, I don't know. Like, I kept waiting to be sucked into this album more, and I think in my head, I'm like, oh, Dire Straits, you know, I, I like Dire Straits, but... Like when I then now that we've done three albums, I mm-hmm. I actually think this is the weakest of the three that we listen to, which seems so weird to say about an album that has so many hits in it. But um, I I don't know. I I felt um, there was there was a piece missing for me, and the the cleanness of the production, um, the sparseness kind of took me on a river, but the river didn't lead anywhere and i think i kept waiting for it to lead me somewhere um and i think that was a little bit of the challenge for me and i think Mm -hmm. especially after i get through your latest trick and i'm like oh this is gonna be like almost like a greatest hits album right it's just it's kind of like we joked about that cars album right it's like okay i know all these songs and so many of them are here but then after your latest trick i knew why worry i think a little bit but i don't think it's nearly as strong a song as um, it could have been the other thing I think this album suffered from a little bit is some of the tracks went too long and I felt they would have been better as four or five minute compositions than they would be as eight minute compositions. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm going to hear Dire Straits go eight minutes, I really want Mark Knopfler to kind of like riff on yes. the blues guitar and just do virtuoso guitar, um, you know, in the same way that if, you know, you listen to somebody like the Allman Brothers or somebody like that's kind of what you're waiting for you know, the last four minutes to hear is the guitar part, but I never felt the guitar chops that obviously Mark Knopfler is an incredible guitar player, but, um, it just, it it didn't, it didn't seem to me to warrant seven minutes or eight minutes on some of these songs. Uh, you know, a song like money for nothing. Sure. Because it's kind of an Epic. Sure. We can stay around for that, but why worry? Um, brothers in arms. I felt those were a little bit too long. So, I have to say, um, I was going to say thumbs in the middle, but I actually think I might go a little bit thumbs down on this one. Um, it just, I would say it's one of the more disappointing albums for me of the 80s so far. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I, I agree with some of what you said. I disagree with other things that you said. I, I would say Fair that it, it, it's very interesting how this does begin because it's got the one, two, three in particular, four to a lesser extent. I did know that song, but I don't remember that being as big as the as 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 on the present as the mm-hmm. other three. But um, those were just of you know of of the eight, of the mid eighties. You know, um, Walk of Life was a, I remember that was that's a, the biggest pop song on here. You know, it's four minutes. It's like it's very easy to get into. It's got that eighties groove, but it's just. It's that just organ a, melody it's, is like yeah, it's a very it's also on N- one of those NFL films videos. Remember that they used <laughs> right. to be on ESPN all the time. It's on one of those, so I always th- associate it with that for some reason, which yeah. is the most '80s videos ever. Yeah, it's so that's like that's a great track and Money for Nothing. I mean, that's yeah, it is and it is an epic song. I mean, that guitar sound, that guitar it's riff incredible. that he's playing is fantastic. It's so great, and I always love Mark Knopfler because you see him play. He never he always plays with his thumb. He never plays with like a guitar pick. He just does that plucking with his thumb in that weird position that he's got his hand and it's just it's so great i mean that is just such a great song i i didn't know i didn't put two and two together on that sting it's the same thing as uh don't stand so close to me but it's absolutely the same thing that yeah. so that was a cool fact um and i love the way that that ends with with you know uh, uh, look at that look at that 
want my and going back and forth like the I want my MTV thing. Mm-hmm. Like it's just that I, that's a great song. So it just starts off so strong, and then it does. Like, adult contemporary is an excellent way of putting it. That's what I was thinking. But it, to me, it's it's good adult contemporary. You know, it's, I'm kind of thinking about this is the sound of Dire Straits losing some of their edge. It's the sound of them aging, right? We mm-hmm. talked this about last week with the the essential question about you know artists what happens when they age and you know you can definitely see a here like a little bit more of a more introspective mature mark knopfler coming through with some of these songs and i don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing but it definitely you know particularly from your latest trick through right across the river i mean you're just getting that six third six and a half minutes eight and a half minutes seven minutes long i mean those are three really long songs yeah um and maybe they overstay their welcome a little bit. Like I don't know if why worry needs to be eight and a half minutes. It's a it's a very pretty song. It like, does it's, it's okay. <laughs> so there you go, John. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a very pretty song. It's 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 nice, right? You know what it is. It, but it does kind of to me get a little bit into the background music type type is thing, it weird which is kind of there. That, is it weird to you that this album sold so many copies? Yes. It's kind of. I mean, incredible. no, because no, because because money for nothing and walk of life were huge okay. freaking songs, yeah, and the people, video catapulted yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, people would buy albums just off the strength of one or two but songs. But like Sultans of Swing was a huge song, right? And so like you'd think, and that album seemed to me to be a little bit more consistent. Like if if like a it didn't have the MTV video, like the, is that the, the, okay? The, I think the video yeah. had a big thing to do with it for for sure. Um, but this is and, like. This is not like who I imagined was watching MTV, who's like buying no. this album. I could right. see people buying this album being disappointed, okay. or yeah, only no, like no listening to the first half. Perspective: Every thirty million people bought it, and everyone was disappointed. <laughs> I mean, that's. I that's mean, harsh, maybe they but, weren't. You know, I, I I don't want to say they, no, they I were. Think, I, I just think that's true. it just seems. Um, I just think of the uh, album that I think of so much as having an MTV video, right, mm-hmm. and knowing what some of the like we covered two of their first four albums which i felt like would have been much more the album that would have been the big well certainly their first album moving pictures i felt like would have been but i think this one was like boy this is a really interesting album because it's not at all what i would have expected to be along with money for nothing you know i think that people definitely were i think that there were probably plenty of people that were surprised you know but like yeah yeah, and and your latest trick is kind of like it yeah like the saxophone like the jazzy bossa nova i don't know kind of you know that's that's a different sound mm-hmm. right across the rivers kind of like world music it's like pan flutes and you Reggae know influence. yeah stuff like that i thought this man the man's too strong i thought that was kind of that's got a little americana vibe to it they kind of it, the last couple the la, that song kind of picks up a little bit one world gets a little bit more into a funk kind of a thing like a funky bass kind of line um so he's really they're really drawing on a lot of different genres here um and I think, I mean, to me, the, my favorite song here, Brothers in Arms, is a, is a fantastic song. That is, I love that song so much. It's the, the um, and, and the way that it's so, it's, it's a very reserved, that he holds back. It's very subdued. Um, but the, I just love that, that, that chord progression, that melody of the chorus. I love the guitar solo. I think it's just got this dramatic kind of melancholy I think it's about like war. It's like a, it's like a, you know, yeah. about wars and you know, just pe- brothers together and you know, in arms as they're fighting the war and stuff. And um, I just, I love the the sonic landscape that that song that 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 song has. And um, I just, I, I think that's a fan. That might, 
that might be my favorite song of the album actually um but uh and i think that was a single as well so i think it ends pretty well the like the last three songs um pretty well but yeah i i would agree that i was a little bit left i was expecting more um it's it's it probably is overall my least favorite of the three that we've covered um i think that there's to me there's just more filler on here mm-hmm. and it's fine it's just it's but it's not it's i agree it's kind of like this was the one that sold a bunch, but it also makes sense because I think it's just because of those big, those big songs that they had towards the beginning. Um, so uh, it's not enough for me to go thumbs in the middle because I think that there's plenty of stuff on here that's that's really great, but it does that middle that middle part in there. It does kind of lose me a little bit, um, you know, and uh, it, it is like that adult. It's that that older, you know, introspective voice that's kind of coming through in that sound, mm-hmm. and um, you know, adult, adult contemporary in and of itself isn't bad um necessarily so but i think this is pretty this is pretty good for 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 that as far as i'm concerned but um but yeah it's probably my least favorite of the three that we've covered but i having that said that i would still say thumbs up because there's there's plenty of good stuff on here for me i I think it's an interesting run too because we didn't cover the 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 day i said earlier the debut but actually um, the 70s stuff we didn't making movies was it dire straits like self-titled was the first and that one's got you know sultans of swing and then you know, other songs that are well-regarded, but it's there. So I'd be curious to hear that one. I, I think by uh, the second album, Communique, yeah. doesn't have anything I recognize. And based on the plays overall, might not be considered, it looks like, one of their stronger albums, or at least their popular albums. I think Making Movies is pretty clearly, um, in my opinion, their best album. Um, and having listened to it, I felt that way. And then, of course, the the one Love Over Gold was an interesting one because it's basically like a Prague album in some ways like like all one, over yeah. the place. I know Matt loves Telegraph Road a lot and Josh mm-hmm. and I were a little bit less in love with it, but yeah. at least the long songs kind of serve, okay, Dire Straits going in a different direction. I think I didn't realize that Dire Straits went in that direction, <laughs> like yeah. away from like lean blues-based songs as yep. long as they did. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I found this album disappointing and it kind of, made me reevaluate the entire band as a result. Oh damn. And and my and my I would um, say I had a similar experience, Josh, thinking, to be honest. Thinking yeah. about the previous albums. I guess you know, I was kind of not having heard making movies before and was kind of really impressed by that. And knowing how good a Mark Knopfler was as a guitarist, I was expecting this album to be kind of a culmination of everything I liked about the band. And they kind of veered away from that uh, of the promise that I thought they mm-hmm. had or the things I liked about it and it seemed like Knopfler does not like the same things I like in his band or or what he wants to pursue is not what I am interested in I do he kind of teased us with less boys right as the last yeah. song on making movies and then <laughs> after that, that it sort of all went downhill you know like it's really like that's the last track on this great album and then you get this prog album and then you get this right yeah so uh, and, you know, it, it's like he kind of rejects wanting to be a guitar virtuoso in the way that I want him to be. You know, I want him to be like Slash or something in terms yeah, of like making these incredible guitar or like Eddie Van Halen or, or Stevie something. Ray Vaughan, you know, yeah. even like if go down that lane. Yeah. Right. Based and guitar he, he doesn't. Yeah. It seems like based on this album and and, uh, you know, Love Over Gold, he's much more interested in kind of like jamming out and exploring the space and like using other influences like you said matt the whole back half of this album is like 
reggae inspired or country blues inspired or potpourri yeah and and that's kind of not what i wanted it's almost unfair how like top loaded this is with all the hits and then the back half is like i i'm i don't know why they constructed the album this way i feel like they would put the spread the hits out maybe it seems like they knew the hits were going to be hits and they put those up front when I feel like they should have spread them out. I think the a whole... lot of, I think a lot of albums around this time did that. That was, it's yeah. not like an ab- abnormal thing to put like the main songs up front. Yeah. I was really underwhelmed by everything after walk of life. I didn't really like your latest trick. I didn't really like um, the rest of the album and it kind of annoyed me that they went on for so long. Um, in the way that John said where he's not really even playing guitar that much. It's like he's letting notes hang and and not doing any sort of wizardry. And it just yeah. kind of felt like a lost opportunity for me. And I felt like this whole album it, and as a result, this whole band was kind of like a lost opportunity. It, it almost me. it almost felt like you're listening to like an Elton John album and he just suddenly stopped playing the piano and started yeah. like going on to the marimbas and like the you know, the xylophone and stuff like, and you're just like, why are you like, what happened to the piano? Which is kind of a little bit of what I wanted to be moored to. And at times that it was almost like, yeah, the yeah, guitar. Where, where's he, the guitar? Yeah. yeah. It kind of fades out too, because like your latest trick, I just think of the sax and like the, how that takes mm-hmm. over. And then other right. times there's like keyboards that just take over. And that's not why I want to listen to this band. Um, and, and that's clearly not what he's, interested in as the lead of the band so i don't i don't know like um i think making movies was by far uh my favorite album of the ones we've listened to i wonder if the earlier that self-titled like john said was was more promising as well um but yeah i'm kind of like i'm also kind of confused at how this band was so popular and like one of the biggest bands of the 80s arguably and I, I, I think they there's an interesting quote later on, which I'll read, but um, it seems like they they were kind of a, almost like a flash in the pan in a sort of way or captured. Uh, well, to, to paraphrase that quote, they almost like captured the zeitgeist at a point and then it like just faded away. Um, so, Did yeah, it kind this... of feel to you like I, I think I never processed Dire Straits as a band that tracked so much with the baby boomers but like it i feel like the more i listen to them the more it's sort of like the boomers moving from like 78 to like 1985 was sort of the vibe i got whereas like in the 78 it's like okay i want like some good guitar rock but it's kind of tame because i no longer really want to go wild anymore but it's still got a little bit blues bass and spicy enough and like by 1985 it's like full-on adult contemporary mixed with like you know even walk of life has a lot of organ you know and stuff in it and i i've never really been it super enamored with that song um i was like wow i'd like you i kind of was like hmm i probably would have before we covered dire straits said that i thought they were like a really strong band but i i kind of had my faith shaken a little bit in that take yeah i i well okay i think um I yeah, think first of all the guitar that. I think the guitar yeah he's not rocking out like he has in the past right or like he's able to but part of what I don't think you always need to do that to be a great guitarist and I think that that's kind of one of the cool things 
with what he's doing here, you know, I like the guitar sound. It's not a virtuoso thing. Mm-hmm. He's got a great guitar tone. He's got great, there is space, but what he's doing when he's playing the notes, I mean, it's a very calculated kind of deliberate, you know, mood and vibe that he's going for. And it yeah, sounds, I think, true. I think, I think it sounds great. Now there is the keyboards do kind of drown out some of that. I mean, there is like an organ solo kind of towards the end of brothers in arms, but like, it's it's still there. There's elements that are still there, and I think that that's one of the interesting things that that thing that I like the most about this is that when it is reserved and when it is held back, mm-hmm. it's still. I just go to Brothers in Arms. I mean, that's still to me that's a super what, powerful song. You know, and it's just what is the, it that interests you about that? Because to me, I found that song extremely boring. I I, it's, be it's, it's, and that. I see why you say that because it's, there's not language is the word that comes to mind. Yeah, and I see that, but <laughs> it, there's something about the way that he does the. The way that he, the, the way that the chorus goes, it's a very simple thing. It doesn't have to be complex, mm-hmm. like the opposite of like a Marillion kind of like bombastic. Yeah. It's a very subtle thing, but I just think it sounds so great. I think it's just really pretty. I think it's, and I, I love the sound of the guitar on it. And I just, I love the mood and the scape that it, the soundscape I mean, that it, that it, that it portrays. It sounds yeah. a little like a Springsteen song. So I guess maybe that's why I think it, you know, I can see a little bit. It has elements of that, his voice and stuff. And but yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just nothing about it really hooked me. It, it didn't yeah. create like an interesting landscape for me. And and if you're gonna if you're gonna use space, like I I guess I just needed to be more the the parts I need to like be drawn in from time to time and just just sort of floated over me. Yeah, those parts where they're jamming don't really build to anything either. It's like not you know kind of prog kind of goes up and down and stuff mm-hmm. and and that doesn't yeah. really it just kind of like tapers off and fades out into the sunset on these songs it's and almost I really like jam rock like yeah like jam, like that's why i struggle with jam rock sometimes because it's like it feels like it's occupying the same space for a long amount of time mm-hmm. and i'm waiting for something else and if you're not going to give me a chorus right and deconstruct it like i at least need it to be you know, you compare it to like the seven minutes stuff we're hearing from like Metallica, right? And it's like I like what they do with their seven minutes a lot more. Yeah. You know, in terms well, of it, yeah, and it's a totally different way of just approaching a song, you know. And I and yeah, it's I, I get I, I I'm and I'm not saying and I do agree with you guys that this is like overall this album I'd rather probably listen to some other their other stuff. But I'd also say like so they got a couple of clunkers on here that you're not really yeah. as into. That doesn't take away from the stuff that they did already, you know, or what they were capable of doing. Mm-hmm. I mean for this to be their their highest ranked album on best ever albums, yeah, I probably wouldn't agree with that. I think that I would probably put a couple other ahead of it, but um, you know, and uh, I I wanted this to be better too, but I also think that like the idea that the guitar, in order to be great, needs to have this like huge like epic solo. I think it can be. I think it can be like this as well, and and still be interesting. And, uh, and I think and, and I solid. need like Mark Knopfler though to give me more of that. Like it's yeah, he mm-hmm. can do different things, but I think like the key of what. It's like if Eddie Van Halen stopped playing stuff that sounded like Eddie. Well, he did. It was called Van Hagar, and I didn't like that as much either, right? And <laughs> some people keyboards. did, you know. But yeah, yeah I, I'll, I'll definitively say that. Yeah, I felt like part of what happened was that Eddie Van Halen stopped playing the guitar and started playing the keyboards and the synth more. And yeah, it worked on 1984, but it, diminishing returns, and that's kind of how I felt about right. this album. It was a little bit diminishing right. returns. And, and and I'm yeah. all for artists being able to explore their own stuff. So I was happy, and I'm happy they made a shit much a shit ton of money too. But I do think it came at the expense of a little bit of my specific taste. And I don't think it was like I needed him to rewrite the songs I like. Like you know, 
uh, what was it, Espresso Love, which I really liked and stuff like that. I didn't even yeah, keep writing good. that, but I would have liked him to have, you know, had a couple more tracks that, that explored some of that same blues-based mm-hmm. space. Had a little bit more yeah. pop. Yeah. yeah. No, I hear you. I, 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 well, I, there's I agree pop with that all too. over I just, this album. Yeah, but like, no, I, I meant pop. I meant pop like um, energy, yeah. you know, like oh, okay. a little bit I, more yeah, of a zig. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I don't disagree. I was just, I was kind of, defending a little bit of the you know kind of the sound that they were going for i think Um, that's fair matt i think i'm that's a good point um Mm -hmm. i'm sure there's other bands that we've talked about that i can't think of right now where they're doing that and i did like it but um but i feel like there's bands that are more restrained with the guitar where i like it i just think that Mm -hmm. the difference matt is that it's not so much that the guitar is restrained that i'm not liking it's just that i am not interested by what the restraint is giving me in the way that i'm trying to think of an album that's more space oriented that um, uh, like the early Pink Floyd, which I thought I was going to hate. Actually, I liked a lot more, you know, and there's plenty of space in that. Um, so mm-hmm. even the stuff I don't love from Pink Floyd, I respect a lot because of I get what they're going for, even if I don't always love it. Maybe that's the example. Yeah. A little bit like mm-hmm. what David Gilmore does and stuff. But OK. Yep. OK. So mm-hmm. um, just to. To finish um, off their bio, the uh, they came back to uh, well. Knopfler spent eighty seven pursuing solo work, and then they came back together in June of eighty eight for Nelson Mandela's birthday tribute at Wembley Stadium. And then in September of eighty eight, Knopfler announced that Dire Straits is breaking up due to stress on the band, the gigantic tour they just did, and and Knopfler wanting to do more solo work. In early ninety one, they reunited with a new lineup and released their sixth album on Every Street. In September of 91, which was their final studio release, this accompanied by a huge world tour with 300 shows for 7.1 million people. The album and tour were not as um, successful critically or commercially, but um, and and as a result, Dire Straits broke up for good. Um, in a G- GQ article, Bill Flanagan said, quote, The subsequent world tour lasted nearly two years, made mountains of money, and drove Dire Straits into the ground. And when the tour was over, both Knopfler's marriage and the band were gone, unquote. Uh, Manager Ed Bicknell said, quote, The last tour was utter misery. Whatever the zeitgeist was that we had been part of, it had passed, quote, unquote. Um, Their final album was live at the BBC and was a contractual obligation. Um, Knopfler has shown no interest in reuniting, saying, I would only do that for charity. I'm glad I've experienced it all. I had a lot of fun with it, but I like things the way they are. In 2018, they were inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Knopfler did not appear at the ceremony, and the, the Hall of Fame recognized John Ilsley, David and Mark Knopfler, Pick Withers, Alan Clark, and Guy Fletcher as significant members of the band, and only Clark, Fletcher, and Ilsley turned up for the ceremony. They are still not reunited, no plans to. Dire Straits is one of the most popular British rock bands, as well as one of the world's most commercially successful artists with total worldwide album sales of more than 120 million. So that is. He's got a little me in him that, like, when it's done, it's done. Yeah. It's a lot of records. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they sold a lot of records at a time when album sales could keep you alive for the rest of your life. Mm. (laughs) Um, But, yep, that's it for Dire Straits. Good stuff. Yep. Okay. And now another artist that we've covered on two separate occasions, just like Dire Straits, is Kate Bush. Uh, And today we're going to be covering Hounds of Love. And I just realized, Matt, that I did Mm. not give you the songs 
um, that we were, or Josh, the songs that we're going to do. So I kind of have to do it right now, right? Yes, so tell let's, me what they are. <laughs> let's, that's actually, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, well, it's kind of like, do you put, where do you put like running up that hill, right? Because that's obviously yeah. the song that is most, so we'll, we'll put that in the montage so that it's there. Okay. And then before of it, you know, before it, I guess I could put cloud busting, but I'm going to go outside the box and put waking the witch uh, mm. as the song before the segment. So here you go. Here's waking mm. the witch. <laughs> choice okay <laughs> so hounds of so to understand like the bio of kate bush is going to be fascinating because the two other times that we did this right we didn't really go into her bio that was coldest and hot take both mm-hmm. times and i think that both to understand like who kate bush is you need a little bit of bio but also to understand what this album is you have to understand a little bit of kate bush's journey because it will explain this album a little bit so I'm going to try to do that without going too long, guys. So let's start with who Kate Bush is. Okay, Kate Bush born July 30th, 1958 in, uh, well, it's a town called Bexley Heath, Kent in England. Uh, her, uh, she grew up with two elder brothers, two parents as well, in a 350-year-old farmhouse. Um, which, by the way, in case you're wondering, is older than our country that we all reside in right now. Her house was. So I found that to be pretty remarkable. Um, There's a lot of very interesting things about Kate Bush that are going to come up. One thing to know about Kate Bush is that she is incredibly headstrong, but like not in the way that seems to alienate people. It's more like she has an opinion and she is able to assert her opinion and i think what's most interesting to her is she asserts it usually in a very male dominated world and gets her way pretty much all the time um i think that's why she kind of runs away from the feminist tag in a way that i think frustrates some folks that kind of want to adopt her you know as like a female icon but Hmm. she kind of uh, there's a very famous quote where she uh, I, I don't want to misquote it, but basically she says she likes artists like David Bowie and male artists because they're basically allowed to be like balls out kind of. And she felt like female artists like have to make like female music. Right. And she's mm-hmm. like, I don't operate in that space. I operate in my own space where I make my own art. And I feel like sometimes like I get stuck. You know, A lot of times she's getting compared to like Joni Mitchell and stuff. And she both likes that comparison because I think she sees a kindred spirit right in Joni Mitchell but also doesn't like the fact that it's like but you know we're also creating our own music and I don't like that I have to be part of this lineage and you know Mm -hmm. she's also compared to like every other songwriter including some that don't fit as easily you know what I mean like you're Linda Ronstadt, Carly Simon, stuff like that. She's like, they're cool, but like I am my own deal right and I don't understand why I have to be in that so that's something to kind of know about her. 
Um, so like many artists, I feel like historically female, but certainly the 80s, uh, including the woman who she knocked off of the UK charts um, with this album, Madonna. She was raised Roman Catholic, um, which is interesting when you think of her artistic journey. She goes to St. Joseph's Covenant Grammar School, a Catholic girls school. Um, during the time that she is there, um, well, before this, she um, taught herself how to play the piano at age 11. Um, and she also played the organ um, in a barn in her parents' house. She studies the violin. She begins kind of writing her own songs. Um, but it really picks up uh, during the time that she is in grammar school and heading into um, what we would call high school here, but that type of age. Um, her parents are artistic. Um, mom was a dancer. Her dad was an amateur pianist. Um, her brother worked as a, as an instrument maker and her other brother, uh, John, so her first one is Patty and then P A D D Y. And then John, her other brother was like a poet and a photographer. So obviously when I'm reading this, I'm like, boy, this is like very similar to like PJ Harvey, who we'll cover later, like similar type of deal where everybody in the family is artistic. They grew up in the country kind of, and became their own, their own sort of artistic creature kind of so i think mm -hmm. when we cover pj harvey you'll see some similar um vibes there so i, I never really realized as much till i did the bio for this but um so she's in this this grammar school saint joseph's and she and her family produce a demo tape with uh 50 songs on it Jeez. and uh it gets circulated to record labels who kind of say thanks but no thanks because she's all of 15 years old when this is happening however uh, a gentleman by the name of Ricky Hopper uh, gets a hold of this, and uh, it ends up in the hands of David Gilmore from Pink Floyd, who we talked about last segment. But David Gilmore gets this, and he is intrigued, and he decides to help Kate Bush, who is all of 16 years old at this time, uh, as he puts it, professionalize her demo tape. Um, but actually, Gilmore comes off great in these stories, and you know, I know he kind of has his own... You know, all the Pink Floyd guys, Woodards and Gilmore, they're kind of all known as being a little bit difficult at times. But he um, he actually pays for her to record three tracks um, in what I guess he would call a more professional manner. He doesn't use professional condescendingly either. It's more like these are amateur. We're going to make it sound a little bit better. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Powell, who's a friend of Gilmore, produces it. He also goes on to produce Kate Bush's first two albums. And the tape is sent to EMI, and uh, EMI signs Kate Bush at the age of 18. So she begins to work on an album that we covered called The Kick Inside. Um, and uh, what happens is Bush is on a retainer for two years from, I think, late 17 to 19, right? That's when she's on this, and she's, during that time... Um, there's a lot of arguments about it. Um, a gentleman by the name of Bob Mercer is in charge of EMI's, uh, they called it group repertoire, but I, it sounds almost like uh, deciding what's going to be released or not. Um, his idea is that he thought the album was good enough to release, but he felt like if it, it was too outside the box, right, for the general public, that it would, like, kind of break Kate Bush. That was his thought, right? Um, Gilmore, like, 
and Bush both dispute that, but Gilmore in particular disputes it. He said like they were using the wrong producers and had bad ideas. Um, the other thing to know is that during this time, she had recorded most of her stuff uh, with a band that included her brother and o other local musicians called the KT Bush Band, like KT, you know, because mm -hmm. she's Catherine Bush. Um, and they kind of said, no, you need more professional musicians. So she kind of um, has to she tries to keep as many around and she eventually brings them back into the fold as many possible, including her brother, Patty, um, who played the harmonica and the mandolin um, was part of the KT uh, band. So during this time, a couple funny things happened. That I think you'll find funny. First, she records up to 200 songs during this time, <laughs> some of which become bootlegs uh, at just different points. So I just imagine this young Kate Bush just exploding. The other thing I thought was hilarious was that EMI gave her like a large advance, I guess, to like not themselves discourage her while she's doing this. So she's writing these songs. She enrolls in interpretive dance classes <laughs> taught by Lindsey Kemp, who you may recognize. He used to teach David Bowie. And much like Bowie, she also does mime training like Bowie did when we talked about him. And uh, they said that during this time, she actually spent more time on schoolwork than recording in their mind, which <laughs> they said that, but then I'm like, how could she have written 200 songs if she was spending, like how, how prolific was she, you know? But um, she kind of got to like her A-levels, which is the exams in Great Britain. And then finally they decide like, okay, you're gonna have to like commit to this. So she records the kick inside, with these new studio musicians, but she slowly starts weaving um, people back in. I think the thing is, that, you know, the kick inside has songs that she wrote as young as she was 13 years old. I think most famously, um, the uh, record company wanted to release James and the Cold Gun, which if you remember, is sort of the most straightforward song on that um, as the debut single. But Kate Bush basically is like, no, it's going to be Wuthering Heights. And I'm like, I don't know. That song's a little bit strange, Kate. And she's like, no, it has to be the single and stuff. And she wins, which when you think about like 1978, yeah. right? Like 19-year-old female, uh, you don't think of that winning too many things in a room full of men, right? right. But not only does she get that, but they'll, they fund the video, which I don't know if you've ever seen the video for – uh, Wuthering Heights, but it's famous. She's basically like in a white dress, just like there's two different versions. There's one where she's like in the woods, and the other is sort of like she's doing the whole ghost pantomime of like you know, mm -hmm. Catherine Henshaw, uh, Archall and uh, uh, Wuthering Heights and stuff. Um, so yeah, so she does that, it becomes a surprise success, selling over one million copies. Wuthering Heights tops the UK and Australian charts, um, and becomes a pretty big hit, and uh, yeah. So then they try to break into America where Kate Bush's uh, je ne sais quoi does not transfer as easily. <laughs> um, and she kind of, it's disappointing in America, but EMI is still pretty excited. Uh, during this time, there's a lot of funny stories. Uh, they managed to get a picture of Kate Bush, I guess, where she's in a light pink top that I guess they felt sec made her sexy, you know, because I guess it, it exposed a little bit of cleavage, but Kate Bush, that like really pissed her off a little bit. She she kind of says they promoted me as a female body. Um, during this time, also they force in her mind they kind of force her to quickly record a follow up album, um, which 
she's not alone during this era. I know that like Boston, right, was another one that got forced into the studio quicker. And like much like uh, Boston, like it led to like the person basically saying, I'm never allowing this to happen. I'm going to completely control my like narrative going forward. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a little bit of what happens with her. They they rush out the album Lionheart and uh, she feels that there was uh, much, much she could have done with it. She was kind of dissatisfied with it thinking she needed more time. So Kate Bush is a woman of action. So she decides to set up her own publishing company called Kate Bush Music. Uh, keep in mind that this is around like 1980s. So she's all about like 22 years old at this point. Uh, she also creates her own management company uh, to main maintain control of her work. Uh, and she uh, appoints members of her family as the board of directors. Um, during this time, so like basically she's, you know, she's, she's all in right there, um, in terms of doing stuff. She also went on tour for pretty much the only time in her career, um, before randomly coming back a few years ago, just out of the clear blue. But during this tour, um, she played a series of shows, uh, it was the, uh, the spring of 1979. There were 17 costume changes, dancing, lighting, and she becomes, there were a couple bands in the 60s that did this primitively, but she becomes the first well-known artist to fashion, um, like, the wireless microphone, you know, that you yeah. see artists in the 80s and 90s using. I think, I always think of, like, Madonna using it and stuff like that, or, like, oh, Bobby like the Brown, one right? runs around your head. Like, you got it, yeah, back. like, up got against, it. you yeah. got it. And so she basically, she doesn't create it, but she popularizes that. So, uh, but then she doesn't tour again until the numbers turn to two zero uh, later. That's how long she doesn't tour. And I think it's oh, because wow. I did not realize it, she didn't like tour regularly. That's she did not tour regularly at all until 2014, March, wow. 2014, when she randomly announced that she was going to do a 22 night residency in London from August to October. So and her entire tickets, career is just based on these albums basically <laughs> yeah and she's not alone there's a couple other bands we're going to cover in the 80s that also famously did not tour um i'm trying to think of um uh who we covered before uh oh it was um uh xtc right they stopped touring for most of their career as well they basically were just a studio band so there's a couple other ones so anyway um kick inside you know then we go to the second album she's basically taking care of the business and she, around 1980, um, she begins to get interested in production and she starts co-producing albums with a gentleman named John Kelly. She eventually uh, produces albums in entirety, uh, Hounds of Love, which we're doing today. Um, and I know this one's already going long, but I'll give you a little bit more of an idea. Around this time, she becomes very interested in synthesizers and drum machines, which really weren't on her earlier albums. Uh, she particularly falls in love with the Fairlight CMI, which we heard lots of in The Dreaming, which we mm -hmm. covered. Um, she falls in love with that from two stories come up quite a bit. One is she was providing backing vocals on Peter Gabriel's third album. And during that time he was using it. And also she uh, was listening. She went to a concert of Stevie Wonder, who also fair, uh, famously um, enjoyed the Fairlight CMI and certainly loved synthesizers and drum machines, as we know from mm -hmm. the 70s. And she decides to start playing around with it. Um, 
The Never Forever album uh, got to number five in the UK singles, still did not break through in the US. Probably the song that people may know best from that album is Babushka, which was a pretty big hit and, you know, um, is still pretty well known. Uh, the Dreaming we covered, but The Dreaming was the album before this, and The Dreaming does not sell very well. Um, as I think we talked about at that time, people said that it was too synthesizer heavy because it had the Fairlight. It certainly is more of an art rock album. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll hear like less accessible and her record company is not happy. The album becomes the first to chart in the U.S. Billboard 200 for her, but it only gets to 157 um, and she only gets a silver disc. So the record label uh, was disappointed in this and basically puts a little bit of pressure on Kate Bush for Hounds of Love. And Kate Bush still maintains quite a bit of her artistic freedom, but she makes a concession. And the concession seems to be that she splits Hounds of Love into two distinct sides, mm. um, which takes advantage of the album and the um, vinyl formats, right? The first side, and I think it's pretty clear when you listen to this album, is the accessible pop side, <laughs> yes. um, kind of made for the record label. And the second side is sort of the the experimental side um, that is the other side of it. So it's kind of like she doesn't compromise her vision, right? It's just sort of mm -hmm. more a concession that, yeah, maybe I need to sell some more albums. So I'll make stuff that sounds more like running up that hill and cloud busting, you know, as opposed to some of the stuff that was on the dreaming, which is a little bit more avant-garde. So um, in that way, we talked about Dire Straits before where there was a split, but Kate Bush's was very deliberately a split um, in there. Um, I think it's also interesting that Kate Bush never refers to the song running up that hill at, as being titled running up that hill because she had uh, labeled it as a deal with God, but the record company thought that was too sensitive. So she only <laughs> refers to that album right. as it. Yep. As she only refers to that song as a deal with God herself like that. She doesn't call it running up that hill. Like that's mm. how she views it. So, um, so I thought that was there. And obviously she continues to make albums, The Sensual World in 89 and then The Red Shoes in 93 before sort of becoming a mother and having pretty much an extended hiatus uh, until 2006. Um, she comes back with The Golden Compass in 2007. It's just a song for that. Uh, and then, like I said, she begins she just drops an album in 2011 called director's cut and then suddenly decides to play um uh concerts she does an album in 2011 which has elton john on it and kind of comes out of nowhere and yeah and she kind of just continues to release music whenever the hell she feels like it um and so that is a little bit about Kate Bush leading up to this album. Um, there's more, and I'll drop it in as we go along, but uh, I'm curious to hear what you guys thought, because third Kate Bush album, certainly a completely different album than each of the others, which were different than the others. Um, I think Matt is our first take on this one. Yes, John, did, I, wait, did you say that she did a song for the Golden Compass movie? Is that what you're uh, I believe to? it is the Golden Compass movie. Let me look because I, I skimmed over. So in 2007, she was asked to write a song for the Golden Compass soundtrack. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got Which it. is a 2007 fantasy yeah. adventure film. Yeah, okay. Philip Pullman series uh, books. Yep. His Dark Materials. Yeah, that exactly. That was pretty much where she... And a TV uh, show now, actually. 
So she, mm-hmm. I, I, I lied. She went on hiatus for a long time, but did make an album called Ariel in November 2005. Um, and I think between Red Shoes and 93, that, okay. the, the Ariel, which was 2005. Then she made the song in 2007 for Golden Compass and then did two additional albums. So actually, the the late- Sensual World was 89. No, that's what I said. Yeah, she was still making albums at her normal right. clip, right? With Central World Red Shoes, it was re- they became they became a little bit more spread out, you know, mm-hmm. because you see, you know, she like I said, she after the first two, right? She's like, I'm going to release yeah. my albums whenever the hell I feel like I'm going to release my albums, and she was yeah. kind of allowed to. Yep. So, mm-hmm. what do you think, Matt? So I only knew Running Up the Hill, and actually, I I, I think I only started listening to that when I heard all the buzz for the. Stranger on Stranger Things, yeah. things. Mm-hmm. and I was like, "Do I know that song?" And then I would, then I played it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I kind of, I'm familiar with it, but I guess I wasn't that familiar with it." But um, so I, this album, I was surprised with how, especially in the beginning, it, that how poppy it was. Um, you know, especially coming off of the Dreaming, which was, you know, it, it seemed to be much more experimental overall than this. So I was expecting, oh, yeah. Yeah. I was expecting this to be more like that. Um, and so I was a little bit taken aback at first. I really, the first three songs are very easy to like. It was just like it, one listens like Hounds of Love's great, uh, pop song. Big Sky's a great song too. I like the, especially when they brought the guitar, they did this. She does this. I like it when artists, they do this thing where they, they play the song for a little bit. You kind of get an idea of what's going on and then they throw this other element to it. It, it just adds so much more to it. And when, when that guitar came in towards the end of the big sky, I was like, Oh, I love this. Right. So I was like yeah. right into it. And that's, and it's interesting that like, I don't know, mother stands for comfort is kind of considered as part of the pop part of this, you know, because that's, that's the first song that starts to kind of get on the little bit of the, the, the RT our, yeah. our avant-garde trajectory. And yeah. it's not like, it's just got some interesting elements. It's got that whistle that's going on and it's, it's kind of it's a little creepy sounding. It's got um, like this industrial percussion to it. Um, yeah, it's just it's it, it it does I, it, it's not doesn't scream pop to me, you know. But it's yeah. it's it's experimental, but it's also not like terribly experimental, you know. Um, and uh, and then it kind of goes off into the more arty kind of realm, which t- to me still doesn't get as arty as the previous record. But um, you know, uh, I I liked kind of the use of the strings and like a song like Cloud Bursting and Under Ice. You know, you got the interesting kind of dramatic strings that are playing there. Um, and Dream of Sheep is a very pretty song. It's kind of more of a straight ahead kind of piano ballad kind of thing. Um, and that's that that's that was very. Uh, pleasant uh, and then you get waking the witch which is like okay here we go this is where you're starting this i thought the album would be more yeah. like that as a whole uh initially it was put off by her that vocaling that she's doing where it's kind of going in and out really quickly mm-hmm. and so it's 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 kind of abrasive i would say um but as i became more familiar with the song I appreciated that more. I, I think I, I liked that kind of effect that she was doing. Um, and then she comes in with Jig of Life, which I loved. I mean, this is the Irish, you know, yeah. ca- trad music that's coming through. And um, it made me just, it took me back to my but days like when very I was much, in Ireland. Very much Kate Bush doing trad music. Correct. Not yes. Richard and yeah. Linda Thompson doing, you know, Right. No, well, it's kind of, yeah. it's interesting because she does like the verses with like, it's kind of like more of the arty Kate Bush thing. And then they do the breakdown, which is just a pretty much a straight ahead 
jig that she, that they're doing right and it's mm-hmm. that could be just in any pub in ireland that's happening and then they bring it back to the more of the a little bit of a harsher element to it so really like that hello earth was drawn out a little bit i the 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 the, the what the Gregorian chanting or whatever the the chorus that was kind of happening towards the end there was an interesting vibe to it. Um, maybe went a little bit long, uh, you know, but I still I still found interesting it interesting there. And the morning fog, um, I thought was a nice way to end end it. Um, you know, there's there's definitely, you know, there's it's it's it there's parts of this that has an '80s feel with the synths that she's using that you were kind of talking about, John. And um, I think is it. I think it's she watching you within very with, differently in this album though than she did in the previous album. True. Yes. Yes. But this is more to me. This is more of a of a pop oriented. This is more mm-hmm. of, for the layman. I would say. You know, this is like this would be a good of the three albums that we listened to. If somebody wanted to get into Kate Bush, I would say start here. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like this it's is definitely be, the most accessible. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching you without me kind of has a little bit of the world music, a little bit similar to that Dire Straits song they were talking about, the pan flute kind of vibe a little bit you know um kind of thing so i i did like this record i think i like the last one better um i i was hoping for a little bit more avant-garde here that would kind of scratch that itch of being like really you know um you know the avant-garde with the with the the the, the melody behind it and this did have it i just i felt like um i felt like this had a little bit of the dire straits thing for me in that some of the some of the more subdued stuff like mother stands for comfort or um you know, and Dream of Sheep, which which I liked, or Watching You Within Me, I liked that too. Um, it just, it didn't really, I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm in love with this. You know, I was, I yeah. was, I, I had my expectations built up to be like, oh man, this is going to be the album. This is going to be in the top of my, of my uh, list of the year yeah. uh, for, for the decade. And I, I don't think that it will be actually. I think that, I think that the, I think Daydreaming might have a better chance of that for me. Um, the Dreaming, I, you mean, right? Uh, yes, yeah, The Dreaming. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, so, but there's definitely plenty of interesting elements here. I love her voice. I mean, you got to talk about her voice. But it's so distinct, mm-hmm. and um, you could hear. And we, I know we've talked about this with pre- her, some of her previous records. But just the influence that she has in so many female artists. Um, you know, somebody like even even recent artists like a Saint Vincent or whatever. The PJ Harvey certainly there. The Bjorks of the world, like these really creative, influential, groundbreaking female artists. Um, and it seems like indie rock, indie artist, you know, and it seems like, man, it all kind of gets traced back to here, you know, because this is different than this is different than Joni Mitchell. This is different than, you know, yeah. some of the other even you mentioned Madonna. This is different than that. This is not there's pop in here, but this is way more than that. Um, and so I got to go thumbs up here. But I also I also have to have a caveat there that I was a little I was actually a little disappointed because I was expecting to be blown away by this. And. I, I wasn't. I think that um, you know. I, I I think that there was a couple of moments in here where I lost um, I lost interest to a, to an extent. But overall, it's a very interesting album, and and uh, and uh, I'm glad that I I got to know it better. Yeah, Kate Bush is always. I can't remember if I've said this before, but she's always name checked as like, you know, she's always up there on like the best albums of the '80s or like you know most influential or oh we, you know what we never did numbers the numbers the, okay i thought i was i, thought I was going, I was going to say that at the beginning of my i forgot a second time so anyway sorry josh Cowan's of love it's number seven in the 1980s okay number one in 1985 number 63 of all time it's very close to rolling stones list because the rolling stone gave it 68 of all time See? so it is all those things it's you're like right profoundly influential Yep, her highest rated album on Best Ever Albums, and she's number 48 in overall artist rankings on Best Ever Albums. So there you go. 
Yeah. And so this is, um, I mean, I really, I really like this album and I really like Kate Bush. I think it just continues Mm. what I thought of her with the dreaming album. And the thing I like about her is, and John said this in the bio, it's just like, she's like singularly herself. And I feel like that comes through in the music. Um, the other thing that kind of gets away from some of those other songwriters, singer songwriters that we talked about, you know, it's not just her and a guitar, um, or that's not kind of the foundation. I think she's very interested in using as many different instruments as possible. She's interested in playing clearly with like kind of the production of her music and not just playing, but like layering and experimenting and, um, pushing the envelope and kind of doing different things. I mean, first and foremost with her voice, she's always trying to do different stuff with her voice. I like when she goes full demon mode on waking the witch and like yeah, it's being, yeah, other, other female artists are not doing that at that time um, for sure. And, and she's layering her voice. Like she's overdubbing her, whatever it is backing vocals of herself against herself and she's doing that a lot and she's go ahead it's that commitment to characters because i always she's always singing as like a character or like a putting herself in going all the way back to wuthering heights right where she's literally playing a character from the novel wuthering heights and like yeah in waking the witch she's like i'm gonna commit to basically being a witch and i'm gonna sing from that viewpoint of it and it could be really campy and corny, but like it doesn't come off that way. You know, it's, no. it's actually more provocative. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is like kind of what I would like dream pop to be if that was the, if she was the genre, because like this is an actual dream, right? It's like constantly changing. It's always keeping you off balance. Sometimes it's a nightmare. Sometimes yeah. it's like ethereal. She definitely still has that ethereal kind of like underpinning to it um, like she had on the dreaming and and it all kind of works for me. I like when she, every song is different. She's always doing, mm-hmm. you know, the jig of life. I really like that song too, with the fiddles and the pipes, um, the Irish pipes. I don't think it's, I looked it up because it's not really a bagpipe, but it's something like similar to it. So she's, she's still got this kind of like folk homage in there. And then she's got like uh, cloud burst, cloud busting, which I really liked as a song she throws the strings in that really work for me and then she's got the drums the kick in with the vocals on it um that was a great song hounds of love has this cello that is really awesome that i really like um and she's just kind of always marrying these different things and putting it through a kate bush filter and like it works really well um Mm. she running up the hill which is you know kind of obviously now the most famous track of her entire career probably if not no i think Wuthering Heights still might be it's still i, I don't know for with, gen z with, i think running well, up with, that hill is with but stranger yeah. things i think that's you know that is reinvigorated interest for in people her. like my parents who love kate bush i think it's always yeah. going to be Wuthering heights because it was such a striking song yeah. like out of the left field you know mm-hmm. but yeah i hear what you're saying for another era of people yeah, yeah. It, and what it's a good song because it I don't know. She has this like constant tempo with the drums underneath it. Um, and then she's got, she's like overdubbing herself on it um, or layering herself. And it's, I mean, it's an earworm. It gets in your head for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and then she like kind of, you know, I'm kind of jumping all over in the album, but Big Sky has like a, 
it's almost like a dance track. Um, it's kind of repetitive, but she then she comes in with like hand claps at one point, and that kind of takes it to another level. And um, that is kind of like this kind of soaring, ethereal track that really works well. Um, and so there's there's always something interesting, and I like this album the more I listen to it. Um, and it kept me off kilter. Like the first time you hear Waking the Witch, you're like, what is happening? Yeah. <laughs> then, but then it kind of like, when you're expecting it, it kind of like works and grows on you. Starts so, to make sense. Yeah. So I I, I like it. Um, I'm, I was appreciated the bio because I didn't know anything about her and was kind of didn't know she was so sporadic in her, her output. It seemed like she was somebody that kind of was, was kind of always making music and I didn't know about. And um, I guess that's the case to some extent, but um, I thought she would have more, I don't know. And I don't know. I thought she'd be like a worldwide phenomenon at one point in her career or something, but. Um, well, she's, she was huge and, and always was huge in Britain. Okay. I'd like to point that out. It didn't yeah. really carry to here, but like she was always considered like a, a major star yeah. in Great Britain. Like the type that like this album came out and knocked like a virgin off the charts. Yeah. So yeah. like that's to give you an idea in Britain where she stands. Yeah. Yeah. She is kind of like now in my head, she's kind of like a, a Bjork type of artist where she's like mm-hmm. associated kind of singular associated with a, a country and, um, and uniquely herself. Um, but yeah, I really like this album. Two thumbs up for me. Yeah, it's funny because we talked a little bit. She, I think I said before that it's kind of like she doesn't really have true like mothers or, or fathers. Like she has elements, right? Like you could def- you could see yeah. why she worked with like Peter Gabriel, right, or stuff like because there's sort of that art rock world, but she exists outside of it. And the more I listen, it's funny. Like Matt mentioned some like Saint Vincent and stuff, and. Um, you know, certainly I've mentioned PJ Harvey, who certainly yeah. we, we've left out other people like Tori Amos, right? Suzanne yeah. Vega. Yes. Um, I mean, these are all people that are like clearly influenced. And the more you listen, the more you're like, you know, like there aren't Fiona a lot Apple. of people. Fiona Apple. Yep. Is another. Exactly. Yep. There's basic. And then you start saying you go like, OK, so anyone who was sort of they're like just badass, a, right? Badass female <laughs> who kind of did their own thing. Right. Like yeah, kind of yeah. like this. She was the lane. She and Joni Mitchell. Right. Like, unap- like, unapologetic, you know, just uh, well, they have their own feminism. Right. Like yeah. it's a strong female, but like couched as sort of like a like, uh, yeah, it's it's you know, cause they're not treading on sex, right? They're yep. not treading on femininity, but they're also not, um, ambiguous, right? Mm. Like, or, or androgynous, you know, they're, they're definitively female while also not embodying the things that sort of, we said females have to be right. And yeah. so that's mm-hmm. why it's so funny to think of like the record company saying like, you know what we can do? Let's take the, the woman who sang, you know, Wuthering Heights and let's put her in like a cute little top. And I think this will be what breaks her to bear. It's like, you just think of that, like people listening to her albums and it's like, yeah, that's clearly never going to work guys. Like that's not what the lane, it became so clear so early. Right. And mm-hmm. th- that's what I've always liked. I, my Kate, my favorite Kate Bush album is the dreaming, which we covered before. Cause I like the strange Kate Bush the best. I love when she's just going full on like, like bizarre choices yeah. or inhabiting yeah. like, characters that are vaguely uncomfortable and you're like i wonder i wonder what piece of media 
Kate Bush, because that's like her a, lot, a big thing with her. She consumes either a book or a piece of media. Like she'll watch a documentary or she'll read something or watch something on TV, you know. And not only even the thing, like the Wuthering Heights thing was famously, she had read the book, but she was inspired by like the BBC broadcast of it, right? And that's kind of what got the vibe for her. And mm -hmm. so like, where does she get these characters? And I, I mean, the dreaming you're getting, like there goes a tenor and pull out the pin and you know, the dreaming and Houdini, like all of these interesting things. And each of them are tied to, you know, things that she consumes. So like the literary person in me, like really appreciates that approach to doing things. And, you know, here you've got like Tennyson, like the, the poet Tennyson and stuff like that are in here. Uh, I also love the fact that like under ice sounds like it's like that you're under ice and it's being sung with like the desperation of like someone who would be like under ice. It, it's mm -hmm. it. If you were to say, like, what would it sound like if you were trapped under ice? Like, it's it's kind of that, right? And, like, what would it sound like if you wake the witch? It's that. Um, I can appreciate the first side, and it's hard to not understand the appeal of cloud-busting hounds of love running up that hill, right? Um, but I, I almost feel like to some degree, um, as much as I like them, I've heard them so many times. They All three of them, if you're... I know that it sounds like she might have floated under your radar, but, like, if you become aware of Kate Bush, right? Like those are, those three songs, you know, Wuthering Heights, uh, Babushka. Um, there's a couple songs that come, um, there's a couple songs that come later that are, that yeah. are pretty big ones, but they're the, they're kind of the ones that this woman's work, I think, you know, comes on a later album and stuff like that. Those are the big, you know, singles. But to me, what I really appreciate about Kate Bush is like the deep cuts. And mm. the second half of this album was my jam, <laughs> you know, like Under Ice, Waking the Witch, are, it, I love that one-two combo. Uh, you guys have mentioned Jig of... I love the fact that it's like, it's trad, but there's like something that doesn't make it that like... Da -da 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 that kind of like loses me, you know, where it's mm -hmm. too festive. It's sort of still a little bit... Ominous is the wrong word, but like... um it's got a little bit of a more of an edge, which sometimes like that Irish music doesn't have for me. Um, the Morning Fog, Matt, I think is the song that you were imagining would be on the first half uh, with Mother Stands for Comfort probably being inserted into the second half. I feel like if you were to trade those two, right, mm -hmm. it would line up a little bit more. Yeah, this that's Morning probably. Morning Fog is, this, is yeah. this pleasant little two minute and 35 second pop song um, that comes in. I agree with you guys. The weakest track on this is Hello Earth. A little bit if it had just been four minutes i might have liked it more but it does draw on a little bit mm -hmm. but hey when you're taking chances right you're gonna have some that don't connect um so yeah much like the other two i i really like this album um quite a bit she does sort of veer into the pop lane a little bit more i'd say going forward um so she steps a little bit more away from the the truly weird um, which is a little sad for me because that's the version I like the best. Um, mm. But this is also a better marriage of for those that might be turned off by the synth heavy nature of the dreaming. Like this one does kind of bring in other instrumentation um, at a higher level. Um, the strings, uh, piano, stuff like that, that were present in earlier Kate Bush albums, but sort of receded to the background when she was just messing around with the synthesizer pretty much exclusively in the last one um, it worked for me but i could see how this one it's like okay it's reined into like a level i like more but um, yeah yep this is an easy thumbs up for me and uh she has a thing that i really can appreciate in an artist in that she takes a lot of chances and i'm interested 
not just artistically by the chances she takes, but aesthetically by a high percentage of songs that are um, also risky songs. Maybe that's a, a little bit why I like Fiona Apple so much, Matt, because I think yeah. she also is another one that hits quite a bit with ideas yeah. that on paper I wouldn't think would work for me. Um, yeah. So nice. there's my general take. Um, any final thoughts that you guys would like to add on this one? I don't think this is the last, is this the last time we're covering her? Yeah, this is, this is yeah. the last time we're going to be covering her. Yeah, that's too her. bad. Yeah, I mean, she, it doesn't surprise me. Like some of these artists that get to, that are just so creative and interesting that they, you know, don't have a, it doesn't always mean they're, they're going to put a, have a ton of output or when they do, it's like many, many years goes and kind of go in between, yeah. you know, album releasing albums, I guess, you know, she just found other things to occupy I mean, her time in the nineties. Uh, and Yeah. They go for it with sensual world in America. That's when they're like, all right, you, you keep producing top 10 albums in great Britain. So we know we got that. So central yeah. world's like, okay, this is the album that we're going to, sort of break her through in America. It does get to the American top 30. Um, and she does actually leave England, which is something she almost never did to go to <laughs> a tower records, which I found hilarious um, on the lower East side in uh, New York, in which she has a line that stretched almost six city blocks. <laughs> and wow. like she ended up signing album or signing albums for, or I guess in this case, CDs for like four hours because it's so rare so that gives you an idea um yeah and so so she continues to be hugely popular in great britain like like a big big pop figure um mm -hmm. but yeah in america i think that's why she probably flew under your radar because she was oh, i yeah. gonna say marginal but she was sort of like someone you know but don't know um i don't know if you were a music fan in england if she could have filled that role she, she was yeah. too big a name yeah she so. she was not on nick rocks <laughs> no like she yeah she is not she probably would have been amused by nick rocks but in the way of you know I, I i love the fact that she she does her art and walks her own path but it doesn't come at the expense of anyone else it's just she sort of inhabits her own world which people like that always fascinate me um like i just don't think that she's pulled truly pulled by any trends besides whatever the hell she wants to do at that exact moment which is right. such a rare thing mm -hmm. yeah i mean was she even on mtv I don't, I don't know. I never saw uh, her. Yeah, no, no. The, yeah, definitely for this album. Like, uh, yeah. Cloud Busting has a pretty famous video that goes How's along it? with the song what? where it's like, um, the idea of Cloud Busting is that there's this guy and he thinks he can change the weather. And the video is, um, it's actually a very famous, uh, running, uh, running Up That Hill has a video too. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, and she's very, actually, she's very visual. Like, Babushka's got a very famous video. And, um, uh, uh, Wuthering Heights has two or three different videos. So, like, she was there. Um, yeah. She was there. Yeah. Especially the one I always remember is the cloud busting video that yeah. um, was pretty well known. Hmm. Uh, yeah. But she might have been more later, uh, Josh, when her videos were showing up, more like in the VH1 lane, if that mm. makes sense. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So. Okay, and that puts an end to our uh, album reviews this week. We are back to a cold list and hot take next week, right, Josh? Um, are we incorrect? Taking, are we taking incorrect? Off next oh, week? we're well, well we're taking off next week, yes. Okay. But um, no, we got one we more. Okay, yeah, we have one more regular episode okay, before yeah, a cold listen. Yep. So we've then got. Then by all means, one of you guys feel free to share. Sure. Um, returning after next week, we are covering Phil Collins' "No Jacket Required." 
Mm. Uh, prefab. Is there an sprout. ellipsis? Nope. Is there an ellipsis? Okay. <laughs> There's not. Nope. Okay. Um, and prefab. Seriously, that has the, <laughs> no. the ellipsis, right, Matt? But I don't remember. Dot dot dot. But seriously. Oh yeah, that, right. Yes. Yeah. That was that's that's correct. Um, yes. Prefab sprout, a band I've never heard of. Steve McQueen. I'm assuming that is the like the actor, actor Steve McQueen. McQueen. Okay. Yeah. And then Sade wow. makes a return mm. with Promise. Um, all okay. 1985 albums, still in 1985. So interesting lineup. Who Arts. gets what on that one? Oh, so glad you asked. Matt's doing mm-hmm. Phil Collins. I'm doing mm-hmm. Prefab Spout, a band I clearly cannot say. And then <laughs> <laughs> you are covering Sade. Sade. Okay. So you have two weeks, uh, Josh, to yeah to work on to that. that. <laughs> yeah. So we yeah, will gonna... be taking off for American Thanksgiving next week. Yes. So. But this um, this album is gonna or this episode's gonna be super sized. We're over at, we're over two and a half hours, so uh, got a lot to listen to. There you go. That's what happens when we start recording a little earlier. We've got more mm-hmm. life. Yep. So well, I'll I'll call it there because I know Matt's been a trooper this episode. Um, hope you feel a little bit better, Matt. And uh, thank you so much for listening to all two and a half hours of this. And uh, we will see you in two weeks. Take care of yourself. Coming the stacks can be found on thirteen different platforms. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CombingThe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow.